Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. Hey there, friends in podcast land. Uh, Benny and Dan here for another episode of Juanced. We hope you're having a good week. Uh, we're in the middle of a great week, enjoying some of the more precious moments of the summer. Dan and I had the opportunity on Sunday to go deep sea fishing in the Mediterranean Sea. Unbelievable. And uh, awesome. we caught some massive, massive tuna. It was, it was great. Uh, no, we didn't catch tuna. We caught, uh, we caught tiny. How, how big were the fish? <laughs> Barbunia is about smaller than this water bottle. Oh, yeah. in, in, in America, it's, it's known as a red mullet. It is known as a red mullet. Which is different from the hockey mullet. Um, different, different kind of mullet. Uh, this is a mullet that you that you eat. Uh, I'll, I'll get off of this. Anyways, today today we're going to go a little little bit, uh, go somewhere a bit different than where we've been in previous episodes, and we're going to talk to uh, Dr. David Mannheim. Uh, David Mannheim is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Haifa's R- Health and Risk Communication Research Center, as well as working with universities and NGOs in the UK and in the United States. His recent work is focused on modeling test and trace programs for the UK and policy options for COVID-19 in the U.S. and internationally. Long before the pandemic, David was working on understanding and mitigating global catastrophic biological risks, including work on bioweapons, natural pandemics, and other disasters with groups at the University of Oxford and for various nonprofits and NGOs in the United States. He has a Ph.D. in public policy and decision theory at the RAND Corporation and has done work that ranged from informing policy decision-making for infectious diseases to modeling risks from earthquakes, hurricanes, and terrorism, and from flood insurance and resiliency building in the wake of catastrophes to how Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies affect counterterrorism finance. So basically, he's your typical underachiever. How's it going, man? Life is uh, complicated nowadays. Yeah, what are, you, what are you into these days, and, uh, and how soon are we all going to die? Uh, uh, no, I'm just kidding, of course, but seriously, we're pretty screwed, right? Um, so the most frustrating thing about COVID is that we definitely have things that we can do that are... Um, the the most frustrating thing about the situation right now is that there are lots of things that can be done to reduce risk and many of them just aren't happening. Um, the, the issue with nuanced topics is that people tend to fall on one of two sides. Either they say, well, this is really simple. Just do this. Um, and they ignore the nuance or they say, well, it's nuanced. There's really no way to know or tell or do anything about this. Um, and there's lots of uncertainty about what, what needs to happen. But there are also tons of things that people can do that just like we know help stop spread. So, so what exactly is your connection to COVID? Because you're not a biologist. You're not a chemist. You're not looking for a, a vaccine or a... Or treatment. So, so explain us exactly how you connect to 
uh, the research that's right. that's happening with uh, COVID nineteen. Yeah. So there's uh, there there are my background is in public policy, and the question generally is what is government or large organizations supposed to do when they have a complicated problem? And the issue is that researchers do fantastic work, and most of the time the process goes something like uh, researchers figure out something really important, they um, go and explain to politicians that this is really important, Um, politicians look at it, and then go back and continue talking about completely unrelated things, and then pass a bill that has like maybe a little bit to do with what they were told, though half the time it does the opposite of what the experts recommended because somebody didn't understand something or nobody nobody bothered like actually thinking through how this works. So, so, so give us an example of uh, something that you or other experts recommended that was only very partially adopted and then the politicians either here in Israel or in the US or somewhere else ended up doing something completely you know misguided or so, boneheaded or whatever. I'll go with I'll go with a more optimistic story. Um in the wake of Hurricane Sandy we were looking at um insurance, flood insurance for uh places like New York. And the question was uh you know flood insurance is crazy expensive um because uh, hurricanes flood lots of houses and it destroys lots of things. And the question is, how do you figure out, like, you don't want to kick people out of their houses just because they live near rivers, um, but you also don't want to pay people effectively um, to rebuild their house every decade or so um, when it gets flooded. And so there, there's a lot of, kind of, there are a lot of complicated economic questions and questions about, like, is it fair to tell people that um, when they sell their house, it's going to drop a ton in value because the next person is going to have to pay the full amount for flood insurance instead of what they're paying as a subsidy? Like, how do you how do you deal with that? Um, and New York City was really interested in trying to fix this problem, so they uh, came up with a couple of like really interesting ideas based on some economic work that had been done. Um, really good economic work that had been done by uh, Wharton at University of Pennsylvania um, on how to structure a program to fix that. The problem was that they were trying to build a program uh, while there was already a federal program that subsidized flood insurance. So basically what they would have ended up doing was building an insurance company for New York that had to do all the things that insurance companies do that are really complicated and require a lot, except that it'd be government, so like it'd get much more difficult to do, um, in order to do something that would have ended up basically um, more expensive and at best just as efficient as what was already happening. Um, and they said like, yeah, we have all these great ideas, and I – uh, and and so they, they asked Rand to do a bunch of work talking about like what the economics of this were, and – I wrote a chapter on like how this would work out, basically saying, guys, this is like, this is like, please don't do this. There's like no benefit at all. Um, and it's just going to be like a disaster. Um, and we sent them the draft and their response was maybe drop that chapter and ignore the fact that we proposed any of these things and we just won't do any of this. And we'll just say, this is a problem. Um, and we're like, yeah, that, that sounds much better than actually trying to do something that's a really bad idea. So they dropped it, um, 
And, you know, my, my supervisor was like, was like, yeah, so we're dropping the chapter that you wrote. And I was like, oh, like I put in all this work. I do all this analysis, whatever. And I was just kind of bummed out. And then somebody pointed out, like, you, you realize that, like, if you hadn't done this work, New York might have launched like a multi-billion dollar program that would have made everybody's life worse. <laughs> and instead they didn't. And I'm like, wow, that's, yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, so occasionally like it does work that, that they don't do the bad things, uh, but it's, it's hard and you need to kind of not just notice that there's research telling you what to do, but then also figure out how to analyze that properly um, in this specific situation that you're in and pay attention to all sorts of and weird interactions between federal and international and, you know, all sorts of different um, pieces to make sure that you're not doing something that's a bad idea. Anybody in Israel giving the government now such good advice regarding uh, COVID? The problem that everybody has right now is that it's really hard to balance what people want and what is actually a good idea especially given how much uncertainty there is. So what Israel did at first was really fantastic, and the, the health ministry did a great job kind of getting case counts really low um, and trying to build up the test, the testing, and it was like they, they did a really great job. And we're, then we're, we're a model of envy for the world, I mean, we, for a we, while. We were. Um, and I say, I say it as if I had what something happened? to do with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what happened You did. Here? You stayed well, at home. You helped, I used to, you helped flatten I the I used curve. to tell everybody, Israel has a, a really unfair advantage over um, most places in that um, Israelis are really used to the idea that when the government tells you, you need to go indoors right now or you might die, um, they really need to listen because that happens sometimes, right. um, unlike most places in the world. So Israelis listened. They were told to get indoors and stay there as much as they can to, you know, not work, to do all these things. And then we declared victory. You know, my, my image is George Bush on the aircraft carrier with the uh, mission accomplished banner. And uh, we, we relaxed too quickly. And a bunch of people had said, like, this is risky. And the issue that we have making decisions like this is how do you balance risks and needs. We knew that it was economically disastrous to stay shut down indefinitely. It was a little bit unclear exactly how to slow things down. It was politically incredibly unpopular to stay shut down long term, especially as case counts went down. And there was a miscalculation. Really, I think the biggest mistake wasn't trying to reopen quickly which in retrospect was a mistake. But I don't think it's fair to say like we should have known this beforehand because I don't think anybody did. There were people who warned that it might. Well, it, with with fairness, aren't aren't these scenarios modeled out? Isn't there some sort of like a, a plan in a drawer for what do we do if this happens or what are, or, or are, there, are people really running, you know, running through the field blind? Yeah, we have lots of models. We have lots of uh, uh, very clear ideas about what will happen. The problem with estimates about what's going to happen for something like COVID is we don't know a lot of the key parameters. Like we, we don't know, we didn't know for the longest time, how long does it take before somebody who's exposed uh, is infectious? How long, 
Is it between when they're infectious and when they first start having symptoms or vice versa? Maybe they start having symptoms and then only afterwards are they infectious. And depending on the disease, this differs. So we didn't know most of these things. We're starting to have really good estimates. We didn't know what the fatality rate is. Everybody was talking about what's the infection fatality rate. Is it, you know, is it like flu? Is it, you know, a a quarter of a percent? Is it one percent? Is it two or three percent? Right, people were getting up into the you know single digits. Uh, people, people were, and, and it turns out that that our initial estimates, though, really, you know, it's probably between you know point seven percent and one point two percent, are basically where we ended up settling. And it depends on the population. It depends on yeah. You know, it sure. depends on a lot of things. But uh, yeah, the the first guesses were very uncertain, but it turned out they were basically correct. Some of the other things. We were just wrong about uh, public health people didn't know whether masks would help or not. They legitimately didn't know for a while. Um, they made a big mistake in, you know, if you don't know what the answer is, um, that doesn't mean the answer is no. Right. And so CDC said, you know, we don't have evidence that masks help. And that's true. They didn't have clear evidence that masks help. Um, you know, the, the equivalent is there's a, a scientific study um, that somebody did as as a joke. Um, you know, so we don't have any randomized controlled trials about whether parachutes help people not die when they fall from airplanes. <laughs> like nobody's done this study. Right. We should do this. Um, and so they published a study saying, so we randomized people into wearing the, the parachute and not wearing the parachute. Unfortunately, everybody who um, was assigned to not wearing the parachute uh, decided not to jump. So the data is incomplete <laughs> and we're not a hundred percent sure what it is that's, that's uh, going to happen. Um, and, the problem is, yeah, we didn't have we didn't have the data, and the right perspective from a decision theory angle is: if you're not sure, you probably want to be more cautious, even if it means that you do something that accidentally makes right. you look foolish later. Um, this is true a bunch of places now. Um, so we we have a bunch of problems with um, kind of. There's a lot of uncertainty. We didn't know what was happening, and. Well, you, you started saying that there was a miscalculation that was made around the there time was, that the country decided right. to open things back up. I think the biggest miscalculation was right after, and that is it, it would have been politically incredibly, incredibly painful for Netanyahu and incredibly unpopular if two weeks after reopening or three weeks after reopening, he said, hey, case counts are going up. We're completely reshutting down and trying again. People would have been up in arms and they would have said correctly, what do you mean like, you know, we're up to a dozen cases a day instead of, you know, only five or six. Like it's not very high anymore. But, uh, you know, exponential curves grow quickly. But we went from like literally like zero, even whatever, 10, 20 cases a day to to a thousand. Yeah. Like overnight. Uh, It wasn't overnight. It was over. Right. It was over the course of like two weeks. And the point is. We started seeing pretty clear indications that it was getting out of control. And politically, it's really hard to reverse course immediately until you have like really clear evidence that it's going bad. Um, But everybody in epidemiology was like, no, the clear evidence is when you go from five cases a day to 10 cases a day to 15 or 20 cases a day. We knew that pretty quickly, but it's politically really hard to tell people, okay, we screwed up, we're going back, especially because you have to admit that you screwed up. Yeah. Um, but so, that's where so, we could have done something. So let me ask you this. This is the first time in recent, you know, when I say recent, I mean in the past, let's say 100 years memory where there, you know, in modern society in the 21st century, there's some sort of a massive worldwide global scale event that we're all dealing with, you know, all over the world, wherever you may be. The miscalculations that well, you just... Except World War Two. 
And no, no, no. I'm saying like a natural <laughs> event of, of some yeah, sort of a yeah, hot. Yeah. Uh, and you can, I'll comment you can about that come later, back to fine. me on that because I may be wrong. But, but the blundering, the miscalculations, the way that our societies, whether it's here or in the United States where many of our listeners are, the things that we're dealing with, uh, are those missteps avoidable or is this somehow simply the inevitable track of a pandemic where everybody is and new, inexperienced and a, and a new in, disease, in dealing right, with it that we didn't know what it was like yeah, so, can anybody do this perfectly all you know every mm-hmm. step of the way or is this just par for the course so uh, I, a lot of people have been saying yeah this is just it's unprecedented uh i i have some friends at uh, johns hopkins center for health security that released a report a year and a half ago, two years ago, talking about like, hey, where where would the next pandemic come from? Um, like, what would it look like? What what would we miss if we miss something? And their answer was, well, it'd probably be a respiratory disease virus spread pretty quickly. Um, we wouldn't know what was happening at first. The fatality rate wouldn't be super high. Otherwise, people would clamp down really quickly. It wouldn't be super low. Otherwise, it wouldn't matter. Um, and they described COVID. And then they ran an exercise, like a, a wargaming exercise, like, okay, so they came up with kind of a feasible scenario and said, like, okay, so this is what's happening to try and understand, like, how it is that response should and shouldn't work. And uh, what did they come up with as a um, as a case? I don't remember where it originated. It wasn't China. But they, they said, oh, well, okay, let's imagine a novel coronavirus shows up and they ran this uh, this this in 2019 like they were presenting this to the people at uh the biological weapons convention meeting of experts last year like three months before covid showed up that sounds like like, either the most interesting or the most boring kind of conference oh man it is it is so incredibly boring Um, uh, just like amazing like there were some like really interesting like if you're really into it then there were like some really interesting pieces but yeah oh um yeah um un meetings um anyway so so but they were they were talking about this like this was exactly the scenario that they talked about and the question is okay so like could we you know have we seen anything like this and people said well the last time there was a pandemic um, well, the last time there was a pandemic was actually the 70s and 80s with AIDS. Right. Um, so we, we've done this. Called, before. That's also called a pandemic? Yeah. Okay. Uh, millions of people across the world. Um, and, you know, if you want to list the blunders, they, they didn't know it was happening for a long time. They didn't do very much. They said, oh, well, this is only affecting some groups. It's not here yet. It's not affecting us. Uh, like, it, it should remind us of exactly what happened now. Was there, I mean, uh, we're... I remember the AIDS pandemic, but I was like 10. Yeah. Like, did, was there a chance that we were going to shut down, that economies and countries were going to close down no, because of AIDS? Because of, because of the, 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 I mean, you know, sexually transmitted diseases are a little bit different. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it, it wouldn't have been fought the same way, but what we did, but did um, they know? Did they know early on that AIDS was was an STD, or was there yeah, a chance no, they, that they thought that it might be transmissible through yeah, the no, air? They, or they knew. Well, no, I remember people like people worrying about shaking touch, hands shaking with hands, people. Yeah, so there was there was some 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 story uh, of a dentist that got you know, yeah people right? people really worried about. No, they knew that it was almost all sexually transmitted. They knew pretty quickly that yeah. By the way, like if you get a blood transfer from somebody, and this was there were there were mistakes made early on that that were fatal to lots of people, unfortunately, but. Um, they knew what was happening pretty quickly, um, and the the types of missteps are um, kind of unsurprising if you look at what's happening. But other than that, and and AIDS is a really really weird um, 
disease for lots of reasons. Um, so I, I don't think it's typical of what we see. Um, but if you look more recently, yeah, there were you know a half dozen events. Um, we keep on getting Ebola outbreaks in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, we had SARS. We had MERS. We had um, West Nile virus. All of these started showing up, and we did exactly the right thing, and they shut. I mean, one of the uh, a couple of the Ebola um, outbreaks took much longer than they should have to control because people didn't um, go in as quickly as they should have. Um, so, what, what was exactly the right thing? Well, exactly the right thing is as soon as you know that there's something happening, you start massively overreacting. So the there's a there's a quote about you know uh, for a pandemic, anything that you do uh, beforehand seems like an overreaction, and anything that you do afterwards seems like an underreaction. Right. Um, you yeah. want to super overreact to um, when something looks like it might be a problem. Uh, you know, people are. The U.S. Congress always has these debate. Well, we're you know we spent a billion dollars in Africa fighting a disease that didn't even show up in the U.S. And then like you have a slightly larger Ebola outbreak and a case comes to the U.S. and we're like, why did we only spend a billion dollars fighting this? Like there are people with Ebola in the U.S. We yeah. should have done something. Um, and, and and that was successful and they they shut it down. And you sure, know, it's like it's like you spend so much money on your military you do it to prevent the war. You know you don't say yeah. like oh, and, then the, and then the war didn't happen and everybody says. That. Like right, military spending is out of control. Exactly. Right. So I, I think that, yeah, so there, there are places where, look, there's plenty of money wasted on uh, preparedness for lots of things. But Like what? Prepare, oh, I mean, um, I'm, I'm not going to talk about the U.S. military right now. Um, no, there, there's lots of preparedness that um, looks good but isn't, like, really helpful. So, I mean, the, the kind of preventing terrorism is much cheaper than um, – trying to rebuild after it happens. Um, but there's also a lot of stuff that happens. Um, we still can't take water bottles onto airplanes. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Which is right. So there, there are some things that are like, okay, so this is like really painful and annoying. And and the dynamics for why it is that, that overreactions like that happen are pretty well understood, which is um, if – uh, if they if they rescind that rule, if they let you take um, you know, don't don't require you to take your shoes off before you get on an airplane, and another shoe bombing happens, even if nobody dies, the guy who made the decision to stop requiring people to take off their shoes gets fired. Yeah. Period. Like they're getting fired, um, even though it was the right call, even though nobody died because of the you know next you know sure. failed shoe bombing. Um, you know, somebody tries to use a binary expl- liquid binary explosive on a plane and it fails again because they're really titchy and hard to deal with it. You know, it doesn't matter because the person who made the decision gets fired. Uh, in reverse, the same thing happens. So for, for COVID, there's one of the things that people are talking about is maybe we should do human challenge trials where we intentionally expose people to the virus and see what happens so that we can better figure out like how it is and It'll help us develop vaccines faster and we can, you know, give somebody a vaccine and then intentionally expose them so that we find out whether the vaccine works in a week instead of three months. And like there are lots of things. Well, but if somebody dies doing that, the person who allowed it is getting fired. And if lots of people die because you didn't do it, everybody keeps their job. So there's there's this problematic asymmetry. So I think that there's a um, there's like we understand where it is that that we're going to fail. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's a lot of money that's spent on prevention stuff that like isn't directed well, or just isn't the right thing to do. Um, 
there's the uh, World Health Organization set up a pandemic catastrophe bond that was supposed to have a bunch of money available to help fight um, a pandemic. And uh, a year ago, we were all talking about how this was poorly structured and a bad idea, and they shouldn't have done it this way. Fine. Like, there there are things that fail. But honestly, um, if they tried more new things that failed, they'd probably also try more new things that succeeded. Um, and yeah, we should, we should be over-preparing the kind of the the classic analyses of how cost effective preparedness is compared to um fixing things afterwards um find different ranges for different types of preparedness for different types of disasters um but you know cost benefit ratios are you know uh, it it costs a tenth as much to prepare as it does to respond, a quarter as much maybe for some things. Um, the more money we spend on it, the more of the lower hanging fruit gets sure. taken up. And, and so, you know, if you spend enough, then you shouldn't be preparing anymore because you already have enough. Um, the military is probably, uh, certainly for the U.S., is probably already there. But right. um, the, the the point is, yeah, we, we should be spending a lot early on. Um, every time something starts happening, we should be overreacting. And this was well understood, and we kept on getting it right, and COVID was a misstep. And there are a bunch of reasons, um, some of which are very clearly the responsibility of governments, some of which are the weird dynamics of exactly how the disease works, some of which are um, the fact that China didn't do as good a job as they could or should have talking about what was happening and releasing data early on. Uh, it was a combination of all these things. Let's talk about China for a second here. Um, you know, we, we, we watch the news, we read the news, but we're certainly not uh, experts on, uh, on the details of this. Um, do you have any, you know, being kind of being looped into this community of researchers, do you have any kind of idea um, if this is, you know, man-made, if this is oh. from wildlife. Does it just, matter? Does it matter? Uh, it matters a huge amount because um, a decade from now, um, the prospects for uh, biological warfare are worrying. Uh, it's very possible that this ends up being, uh, you know, no big deal and everybody, you know, 10, 20 years from now says like, yeah, we were worried about that and it was ridiculous. Um, we're not sure. So it matters. But no, this wasn't a man-made event. Um, there's some speculation. You said that pretty authoritatively. Yeah. Um, there are lots of things that we can do to trace how um, diseases evolve. And there are lots of things that we can do to engineer new things. The types of things that people do to engineer new diseases, and this is kind of a very new area of research, um, but I, I know some people who are specifically working on this, and you can detect uh, when something was uh, biologically engineered. You can even figure out in a large percentage of cases, the tech for this is getting better, but like even which labs and which techniques were used because different labs use different techniques. Um, this was not biologically engineered, and even kind of more convincingly, we know basically exactly where it came from. There's another piece of speculation which is less crazy but probably also just completely wrong, um, which is maybe um, one of the labs in Wuhan um, had captured an animal specimen and didn't modify it, but like it escaped from the lab. And that, there's kind of – it's really hard to 
tell the difference between that and natural outbreaks. Mm -hmm. But it's also really weird to think, given the rate that we know people interact with wildlife all over the place and the rate at which new diseases emerge and the types of precautions that do get taken in biolabs and they're, um, you know, Wuhan is a BSL-4, biosecurity level 4 facility, which means it's crazy strict about some of these things. And like they have spacesuits that they wear into the thing with air coming from the outside and somebody's constantly watching on video. And, and U.S. researchers had been in Wuhan repeatedly um, in their BSL-4 lab and had like checked it out. Nobody was like, oh, they're super not following the rule. Like everybody said, yeah, they're basically doing the right things. Is it possible that something got out from there? Yeah, of course it's possible. It's hard to believe that that's what's happening, and it's definitely hard to believe that this was uh, intentional. And and just as one last thing on this, it's super hard to believe it was intentional that it was intentional because it would have been a really dumb way to do something. Like it it doesn't help China at all. Like this is one of the problems, one of the reasons we we don't worry nearly as much about biological weapons as we do other things is because it's a really crappy kind of weapon. <laughs> like you don't want to launch weapons that might hit you. That might come back in the right. wind, right? Right, like you really, this is a bad idea and infectious diseases are horrible for that. You know, anthrax isn't infectious. Do we worry about anthrax attacks? Yeah, some, but like, only to a limited extent. It's kind of hard to actually do. Um, but uh, infectious diseases? You, you've tried. Nobody, I, I, a lot of groups tried. Um, there was uh, Om Shinriko that uh, did the sarin attack in um, the Japanese subway, um, had been trying to use bioweapons for like a decade beforehand. And we only found out during the trial for the sarin attack, when somebody was like, oh, yeah, it was like the, the, the time we tried to use anthrax. And everyone was like, Wait, what? what? And they're like, oh, yeah, we, we cultivated it. We did all this stuff. And then like we, we um, used a big fan to try and spread it out over Tokyo and nothing happened. And like afterwards, yeah, they reconstructed. It sounds reconstructed, like the failed plot of like a James Bond movie. Yeah, right? like yeah. It, was, it was like, and, and reconstructing, it was like, oh, yeah, they didn't have the expertise to do this. It's actually really hard, um, which we knew beforehand. There's, uh, there are a couple of uh, books on like, hey, by the way, bioweapons are a lot harder than people think. Um, the Russian bioweapons program spent billions and billions and billions of dollars and got basically no progress over decades. Um, like it's, it's hard. Um, so when I... So, so you're saying, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it was accidentally, you know, came out of the lab, but this is probably a natural thing from yeah. interactions with the wildlife. You know, when this first happened and we had, I think probably after the first week that we had to shut down in our house, my, my 11 year old son, um, was like, uh, you know, he's trying to be funny, but there's something, you know, you know, a guy in China eats a bat and we all have to, you know, yeah. lock down in our house for a month. Is this like... Is this the new reality now? Like a so, guy in China eats an undercooked bat at a wet market and, I just, you know. There's a, there's a natural human um, cognitive bias that wants to associate large consequences with important things happening. So um, somebody tried to assassinate Ronald Reagan at one point. Um, have you ever heard any conspiracy theories about the attempted assassination of, of Ronald Reagan? You know, honestly, that's probably one of the things I have 
nobody's no. well. There, there was nobody's there was the movie. Them. There was the movie with Mel Gibson. Yeah, but nobody, of all people, nobody which ever, was called Conspiracy Theory, and they purported purported right. that he was uh, MK Ultra uh, but, but assassin. Nobody, nobody seriously thinks like, oh, by the way, like this was definitely a plot. Everybody has these crazy conspiracy theories about the Kennedy assassination. Why? What, what was the difference? In one of them, the bullet succeeded. Hit? Right, and one of them, the bullet hit. Like, how small of a difference are we talking about between the attempted assassination in one case and the successful assassination in the other case? A very small one, except for the consequences. Well, it's, like, it's like when people play the game, you know, there are certain events that happen in history that change the entire trajectory of, 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 human, of, you know, of human history, essentially. You know, if Hitler had not been born, then no, 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 no. And, and the question is, you know, that I always say, what's the value of playing that game? Because in the end, Hitler was born. And this happened, and it's like saying, you know, if this per thing would have succeeded, I mean, then this would, but it didn't. I, so. Look, you just, uh, you know, Archduke Ferdinand was killed because his motorcade, after a failed assassination attempt, like they, there was this, like, right, didn't they go like an alternate route? Yeah, they the went end. an alternate route, and literally the guy who killed him was just like, you know, depressed and upset and kind of walking down the street, and all of a sudden the motorcade, like, turns down the street towards him, and he's like, <laughs> There he is, and he shoots him, and he kills him, and it launched. And like, it they didn't intend to launch World War One, but like, and he like accidentally like you know ends up being successful, and and it's it had a huge consequence, but it's really hard. So everybody focuses on there was this conspiracy right. to kill him that launched this, but like that's not. So people have this natural um, desire to think like only something big could have caused a global pandemic, and the answer is. On one level, yeah, the big thing that happened that caused the global pandemic is that we have a interconnected world where people fly around all the time so diseases can spread more easily right. and we're encroaching on natural habitats of animals more and we um, allow these wet markets. So, like there are lots of like kind of general causes for why it is that this is happening. Um, it doesn't happen that frequently. Like just to be clear, like most of the emerging diseases – don't look like COVID. The ones that kind of look like it mostly are stopped. Um, so no, we don't live in a world where somebody eats a bat and suddenly there's a global pandemic most of the time. So I could tell my son he was wrong. But there are also... He can go back to eating bats. Go back to eating bats. Right. Well, I mean, this is, you know, the 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 line is, you know, you, you, you know, if you're one in a million, then there are a thousand of you in China. Um, <laughs> there are a billion people in China. Like, think about all the chances there are for something to happen when there are close to 8 billion people in the world. Yeah. Like, how often does somebody get struck by lightning and win the lottery in the same day? The answer is, oh, that's like 1 in 10 billion. So, like, it happens every year to somebody? Um, like, the numbers start working differently when you get to really huge numbers. Right. Chances just, yeah, we're going to see... Um, novel diseases. We're going to see more novel diseases. Most of them are going to be mostly inconsequential. Um, if we build a good global health infrastructure, um, most of the ones that are consequential will get stopped. Um, we do know how to stop these things. I, I want to go back in a second to health, yeah. health infrastructure, but I will say that a part of this seems to be, and this is definitely my experience in just following this unfold, is that there's um, you know, you, you want the public to have a certain amount of buy-in to follow. And we were talking about that earlier about how the Israeli public is compliant or, or so it's, it was in the beginning with, with the government's directives. Um, but we were talking about Wuhan and we were talking about whether it was biological or, or well, it is biological, but whether it was man-made or whether it was natural, um, not to talk about the possibility that it was intentional, which, which 
you know, that would be like we said, idiotic, but it seems to be that when, when, you know, it just seems to be like, it's just like a, a crappy coincidence for having the public not want to go to conspiracy places in their mind that there happened to be a BSL four lab in the same city, like a block away, like a two, you know, two kilometers away. It's one of the biggest cities in China. True. Like, they have BSL labs. Like if 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 it had emerged in um you know in the DC area, people would have said like oh, but like there are a couple like there are high security bio labs in large places. Like that's where they put them because that's where the universities are. So yeah, I I understand why there's this tendency. But if it would have been like in I don't know Chengdu where there isn't a BSL four bio or, lab, like, or if it had been in be sub-Saharan Africa where we keep on having outbreaks of other things, or if it had been in the Middle East where MERS came from, or if it had been right. yeah. Um, it's, it, you know, again, coincidences happen. I, yeah. So did, did, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to ask, did the, did the research community expect this amount of crazy to come out of the closet? Which part of the research community? Um, so there are people, I, I have some friends at Rand who work on this specifically. There are a bunch of people. Um, I, my supervisor for my postdoc works on this a bunch on like, what is it that happens with misinformation and uh, you know trolls online and how it is that this spread? And yeah, the um, the misinformation folks and the kind of people who research anti-vax, they were like, "Oh, this is going to be a nightmare." Like, we know that this is going to be a mess. Um, there's no chance that people don't start saying crazy things, and we know that Russian trolls are going to be. Um, amplifying this because they amplify everything that seems a little bit crazy or divisive. Um, and like, we know, we know lots of things. It's going to end up like being stupid and crazy. Um, the U S political situation right now makes that much worse than it otherwise would be. Um, you, I, you don't see this amount of, of crazy coming from other countries though. You see it primarily, or maybe it's just, West. maybe, maybe I'm biased because, you know, I, I speak no. two, two and a bit languages, but do you see this happening in Europe? Do you see this happening in, in I don't know, South Asia? The type of conspiracies that you see are different. Um, and and by the way, there, there's, there are huge problems with misinformation spreading over WhatsApp in India. It's just a different channel and you don't hear okay, about it so the same it is way. Ha- it is happening well, in other so, places. So the, the places, the, the issues that you have are different. Um, there, the UK had a couple of people... Um, attacked when they were setting up the um, the new wireless networks um, because like those spread COVID, which is I hear they also make insane. Yeah, all sorts of things. Um, there's so uh, yeah, there there are lots of crazy conspiracies. The the different types that you hear differ in different places. Um, you know you know what the conspiracies are in Russia and China that this is a U.S. plot. Because of course, that the disease itself is used, yeah. or that it doesn't even exist. Uh, no, that it's a U.S. plot. I mean, Russia um, has, I think, the same instinctive reaction to COVID as they do to homosexuality, which is oh, but this doesn't exist here, right? Um, which is you know, uh, great uh, autocracies tend to do this. I, yeah. Um, so how do you create... Okay, so we live in a global world. The virus used our modern networks to spread. We now have to contend with this internationally. How's the cooperation been so far? How much does the social media atmosphere and all of the 
conspiracy theories, does that seep into policymaking? You know, there, there clearly are effects to the, to the culture and, and how depends, we handle this. Yeah, it depends a lot on where you're talking about. So I, I, when I said the U.S. is in a particularly bad situation, I've, I've talked about this. Um, I was asked a year and a half, two years ago, like, so what do you think um, would happen? Like, would we, would we manage to contain a pandemic if it happened now? And my answer was almost certainly yes. I mean, like everybody has plans for dealing with this. I mean, okay, maybe the current administration in the U.S. would have a lot more problems than in general. But like other than that, like as long as it doesn't happen under the Trump administration, then we would have been fine. And like I think back to saying this a lot now um, for obvious reasons. The U.S. is usually a global leader in helping deal with yeah. these things, and they drop the ball all sorts of different – like not just in terms of their domestic response. But if the U.S. hadn't been dealing with domestic response, they would have been helping internationally. Um, sure. Can I, can I pause most, just, just for yeah. a second? And I want you to continue your point, but we have a, you know, a certain amount of people that are listening to this are going to, because of the nature of the polarized world yeah. that we live in, they're going to hear you say – the Trump administration dropped the ball and they're going to go to this crazy knee jerk reaction of like pro Trump, anti Trump. We have to discount whatever this guy's saying now because he's clearly right. against Trump. Like, what are the tangible ways that people that are in this room might feel are obvious, but in which ways did the administration drop the ball? So actually, one of the one of the interesting stories that came out recently was um, Jared Kushner was told to like go off and come up with a with a um, strategy for. Um, doing testing and like dealing with this and he went off and he did this and a bunch of global health people were like he went off and did this without the global health people and like he talked to like the billionaires instead of talking to the experts and he went off and he did this and like uh, super irresponsible and he went off and he put together a plan to do massive scale testing in the u.s almost immediately in like mid-march early april and like they had a plan um and like that would have been amazing, and and there are a bunch of people now. So you're who are saying he actually this. did a good job. Oh, he did an amazing job, and then the plan was dropped because Why? because honestly, um, the Trump administration has a lot of trouble executing on things because and and look, you know the the speculation, you know, the deep state opposes Trump is kind of crazy, but also completely correct in that most of the people in government think think that he does a bad job with things, and um, so they kind of oppose the things that he wants to do. And yeah. uh, you know, that, that's that's true, I think. Well, the administration also didn't fill a lot of high-level bureaucratic posts. They've been fighting with Congress constantly, even, even the Republicans in Congress. Like they, uh, the Trump administration did not get along with their allies, um, forever. Like, there's a lot of things that um, political outsiders can do a lot of things that political insiders can't, and that's sometimes really valuable. Um, but if you're in Washington, you have to play the game to some extent. Yeah, you have to know how the system and works. If you, and if you don't, like, you can, you can fight the system, but you can't ignore it. Right. Um, and I feel like there was too much there. Um, look, the, there were a lot of things the Trump administration has gotten right um, I think more um, places that people weren't paying attention to. There are some things that they did that were fantastic. Um, Such as? Oh, man. I was so happy with um, their push initially to um, have the FDA 
regulate less harshly. Um, the FDA is, I was talking before about how um, nobody gets blamed for not doing something. Um, right. the, F, the FDA can't approve medication if there's like a one in a thousand chance that it might kill a half a percent of the people who take it. Um, which seems like a good thing because you don't want to approve a medication that kills half a percent of um, people who take it. But that means that all of these medications that could be super effective and yeah, save you, lots of lives don't get of right. Don't get approved, um, and that's a problem that we're having right now with COVID stuff. That like people are still more hesitant than they should be about a lot of things. I, I talked about that earlier. Um, and the Trump administration pushed really early on, and it was a Republican talking point forever, and it should have been pushed more um, to like fix this. Um, and having a head of the FDA who was pushing for this was really super helpful. Um, and then the government dysfunction and the fact that the Trump administration switched who was in charge of things a couple of times. They've, they've had, since they appointed somebody who like I was really happy with, they switched the head of the FDA twice and it's been a mess. And so there were things that they tried to do that were great. And the fact that they've been kind of fumbling and throwing you know, different people in and, and switching things around and having fights within the administration has been super unhelpful for them. So you're saying it's not even like, this is not a left-right thing, people. This is not a pro-Trump, anti-Trump thing. This is, you know, good governance, good management versus dropping the ball. Like, this is not a... Right? Yeah. Um, so I got, I got to ask, who, in your opinion, in the world, as far as you're aware, is doing a good job uh, who got more of the steps correct? Who's doing the worst job? Um, what can we learn from this? Okay. So I think the the people who got this right really quickly um, were the um, South Asian countries that had dealt with SARS. Hmm. Like they just had, they, I mean, it's it's kind of an unfair advantage. You, you take uh, um, two teams, one of which has been practicing for the last month and one of which hasn't. Um, and the team that's been getting lots of practice does better. Um, they're more used to wearing masks normally. Yeah. Um, like if you cough somewhere in, um, uh, you know, Japan and you're not wearing a mask before COVID, like before this was a thing, people looked at you like you just kicked a baby. Um, that's like crazy. How could you do that? Um, like if you're not feeling great, then you wear a mask and mostly stay at home. Um, so kind of there there are some norms there that made it much easier there, by the way I, I know that maybe you haven't even gotten into this but pre-corona um the mask wearing culture that, that exact kind of uh, hypersensitivity to public health that you you know that seems to exist in uh, southeast asia or, or east asia is, is does that correlate to measurable lower levels of sickness among society just in general with cold and flu and things like that has anyone ever even looked at that? Um, yes, there are people who looked at it, and I'm not remembering. Like, yeah, I, I could, I could spend 20 minutes uh, looking through um, resources. I'm, yes, there are papers on it. It's not a huge effect, um, but but there's definitely something there. I mean, there's definitely it definitely helps. Um, does how much does it matter changing the rate of flu transmission from, you know, I don't know, say uh 1.3 people to 1.1 people it's not a huge effect one of the things for covid that we've noticed is there are lots of things that we can do that have small effects but if you do all of them 
and you get them right. So mask wearing helps a little bit. It does not do everything. It, it doesn't fix it completely. Um, not having large crowds indoors definitely matters a lot, but just banning that doesn't do enough. Um, actually having lots of testing available really helps, but unless you do like a super amazing job, um, by itself, it's not close to enough. Um, shutting down when you have lots of transmission definitely like gives you a head start. But even that, unless you're willing to like shut down for a couple of weeks every month, um, like that alone isn't enough. You do all of these things. Oh, you definitely have it under control. Like there's no, there's no difficulty controlling Corona. If you're willing to put all of the measures that you have available in place. Um, and that's why New Zealand got to reopen. Like they, 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 they're having, uh, they're having soccer games. Everybody's showing up in person. There's no problem. Um, so there are a lot of places that just got it right. A large part of just getting it right is doing a good enough job early enough and or long enough to get transmission levels low enough so that you can relax things gradually. Israel was really close to pulling this off. Um, so what happened? Uh, I, I mean, there are a couple of things. Look, uh, um, I believe the phrase is uh, um, success has uh, one parent, but failure has many. Um, no, success has many parents. Failure has none. Failure is so, an orphan. Uh, but, right? but the point that's is, the no, but that's, that's, that's exactly not. Everybody takes credit for sure. success. Sure, 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 sure. Everyone takes yeah. credit. But, but the point is failures don't happen for just one reason. You have to have sure. lots of things go wrong for, to fail. Um, I think that that's the that's the place where um, if you get a couple of things wrong at the same time, so if you don't react early enough, if spread look once spread gets out of control, um, as it is in the U.S., as it is in the U.K., to a lesser extent in Israel now, um, it gets so much harder to stop, so much harder. Um, so right now, we ha- we have to do a lot more. You know, you're catching up when you're behind is a lot harder than maintaining right. your lead. But um, sometimes but sometimes it's politically easier. Oh yeah. Um so right it's easier to rip off a band-aid and say this is going to hurt for like 2 weeks, a month, 2 so, months, you know like we did in the first uh, closure. I'm saying politically from from I was what, asked at the end of January yeah. whether we should shut down international travel to stop covid. Like the end of January. So this is just clear, what, just when we were finding out about this in China. Like we right? knew there was a thing. We knew that it was being transmitted in China. We didn't have any evidence that it was outside of China. And a, a friend of mine who's like worried about this type of thing was like, are there any plans to shut down international travel? And my answer was no, because it's crazy. Like you can't do that right now. Um, and I think that that was right. Um, and in large part, that's because um, if you imagine politically what would have happened if um, Trump or Boris Johnson or Netanyahu had said, at the end of January, we're shutting down our airports, not letting anybody in or out. We're just going to see where things are. Like, I know this is going to cost a lot of money. Um, how many days would it have been before a vote of no confidence? How many hours would it have been before a vote of no confidence? You know, uh, um, people talk about like, oh, we could remove Trump from office with the 25th Amendment. Like things like that would have started happening if they had at the end of January said um, we need to shut down air travel. America's still flying around. OK, so so internally, then, at least. So then so right? then so then the question right. the question is, OK, but what would have happened? And the answer is, well, they would have reversed the decision really quickly 
and been removed from office. And then like three months later, everybody said, wow, that would have been a good idea. We screwed up. <laughs> they were right. But yeah. um, does that does that change the fact that it didn't work at the time and the person who did right. it ended their political career? No, not at all. Yeah. Like their their career is still over. Um, you know, so how much do you think, you know, let's let's take someone like. Well, let's take the the example of Netanyahu here, and and I don't want to get into any of the political stuff in the pro. I don't want yeah. to get into any of that here. I want to st- stay totally on policy, uh, on Not policy and, and COVID. Um, how much of of the decision making um, early on, and then kind of when we saw the spike go back up, how much of the decision making was listening to experts and really trying to manage this? Given everything that you said, given the you know that the taking too early precautions can cost you politically, and and maybe having seen as not taking enough precautions early on can cost you politically. So, how much of his calculations is proper crisis management, uh, pandemic management? How much of it is I also need to stay in office, and again keeping all the other stuff aside? Uh, so- and how much of it is so intertwined that we can't even begin to unravel them? So I'm going to um, completely switch topics and get back to this in just a second, but I think there's a really good illustrative example, which is um, we have a big problem in economics where controlling monetary policy is like super hard because it's always politically difficult to say we want to reduce growth, but if you don't do it, then you end up with inflation and right. it ends up as a mess. So what do we do about that? The... International consensus, and this is like super like basic at this point, is you absolutely have to have an independent central bank. And politicians can't mess around with bank policy. And Netanyahu knows this like really well. Like he's he gets this. And having an independent um, bank that gets to like deal with that side of things is like critical. Um, why? Because when they do things, there's no political blame look, the bank did it. Like, I have no control. I'm I'm as upset as everybody else. I think that one of the things that people had talked about before, but COVID certainly reinforced, is that we need things like that for public health. Mm. Um, when Israel had no government, they were doing a great job. It, Why? Yeah, it seemed to be. Yeah. Why? And the answer is because the political decisions are really, really hard. Like, they're really hard, and they're painful. And as soon as a politician had to make them, it kind of, you put yourself in a situation where you can't win. Um, so I think that kind of the the original blame for that is structural, is as soon as it's a political discussion, you can't win. The... It's a really interesting point. You know, I, I was, uh, I remember during the the stretch of the year where we didn't have a government... And I heard somebody, a political analyst, was um, <clears throat> was explaining, um, the, the, you know, maybe a silver lining in the cloud of not having a government is that, okay, no drastic decisions are being made. No, you know, political funding to this party or that party's interests are being made. This is a government of bureaucrats right now. Um, while we go through another another election cycle, maybe the cost of not having an actual government might have been... Uh, useful in some ways so, so this is interesting but i, I want to be know. careful that we don't bureaucracies bureaucracies on. are really really helpful and really costly 
Like they're just really painful. So you want them in charge sometimes, but if they get big, then they're like they, they do different things wrong. So there, there's a real balance there. Uh, that, that's what I wanted to say. That that I want to avoid going to a place where I start thinking. Forget about listeners. Where I start thinking, you know, maybe fourth elections wouldn't be a bad thing because at least then we would get COVID under control because the political process would be left out of this decision. I don't think that's process. true. Um, so I, I, yeah, I. One of the things that happened um, after the uh, after the formation of government is this turned super political. Um, that's not something you undo. Like you, you can't. Um, this is this is a constant problem um, when talking about policy, which is somebody has a really good policy idea, and they're like, "Look, everybody should agree." Um, in the nineties. Heritage Foundation had this really great idea in the U.S. for um, healthcare. Heritage Foundation, for those not familiar, is kind of a small C conservative right wing think tank, but a very prestigious one. Yes, very prestigious, really bright people. Um, And they had this good idea, which is, hey, maybe we should, um, instead of letting healthcare in the U.S. work the way that it does, um, maybe we should make markets for people to buy insurance and just like mandate insurance and this this might start sounding familiar and it was like this really interesting new idea that was to be really clear a super right-wing idea and it took somebody like Mitt Romney to do this in a state and actually get it done and it was a conservative idea and liberals were horrified about like you know uh having markets determine who can get procedures done and like this is this is horrible we don't want this happening um and then when the liberals started deciding that they wanted healthcare reform they took this idea and they and and suddenly like it 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 switched from oh this is what conservatives want to this is what liberals want and as policy ideas become more um entrenched on either side it becomes harder to get consensus about them so as soon as something like that becomes political, people start fighting. And once they start fighting, there's no way to go back to, and this isn't a political issue. There's nothing about COVID now in the U.S. that isn't a political issue, right. unfortunately. Even wearing masks has become political. Um, wearing masks, shutting down school. It's it's very strange that you know uh, people, people keep on commenting that the Republicans are now um, like – Look, we can't we can't afford to not have better education. Like we desperately need to focus on educating our children, um, and we can't keep things shut down. Um, and the Democrats are like, no, 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 don't like stop worrying about education so much, which is like a weird kind of reversal. Um, yeah, it it ends up getting super political in ways that don't actually line up with uh, kind of the general right how um, you would gestalt of how it is right. right. Um, and yeah, once it's political, it's really it, – it doesn't undo that. So being that it is now political majorly in America and to a lesser extent here in Israel in terms of – To a much lesser extent here, I think. Much, much lesser extent. No, nobody's, nobody's coming out – nobody in this country is coming out and saying masks are a bad idea. Right. Right, or it's my right not to can a, or whatever. Can a place like the U.S. succeed in getting out of this effectively? Yeah. Or is, um, or, or is it just a vaccine is a silver bullet and that's the only thing that's – if only a vaccine were a silver bullet. It's it's unclear how quickly we'll get one. It's unclear how effective it'll be. It's unclear. Like, there are lots of things. Um, herd immunity isn't 
necessarily guarantee that things go away or are fixed. Can we, can we um, talk about herd immunity for a second? Uh, Let's come I'll back get there. I'll get yeah, there yeah. in a second. Um, there are lots of things. There are lots of different policies, as I said before. Like there are lots of different ways to get to control. Um, there are some right wing economists, Paul Romer in the U.S., um, who said like we just need to do we we need a um, hundred million tests a week, a billion tests a week. We need to just test everybody like every couple days. And just like require everybody who turns out positive to go home. And if we do this for a month or two, it's gone. And he's right. Um, what, it if requires- they, what if they came up with a test? I, and I've seen like, you know, again, on the news, tests that take a minute, tests that take an hour. Uh, yeah, would so would that be they're like working a, on it. Right. Would that be a massive transformational, uh, you know, addition to this that, that could solve this problem? Because right now, I mean, in Israel... You take a test, you wait a couple of days. In the States, I've heard you can wait even a week it to get takes, your results back. Yeah, the the timing piece is really critical. And I can talk about the epidemiology here just really quickly, which is um, it doesn't matter if you know you're positive if you find out after you've already spread exactly. it to lots of right, people. Right, exactly. Um, it, it, it's okay, you know, if, if you find out that you're positive and then they isolate all of your contacts, like the next day, then it doesn't matter that you got tested after you started spreading it because they stopped it for the next generation. But if it takes, you know, uh, my my son was exposed at school and we ended up in Bidud, and fine, like this is kind of the new normal for how it is that this works. But we scheduled the test. They didn't have a test available for four days. Um, we got the test and then it took another three days to get the result. That's two cycles of the people he was in touch with maybe getting exposed. Yeah. And then right. It seems people. like in that case, there's no right. there's no epidemiological value. It's simply just for your mental well-being yeah. to know if you exactly. have the thing or so, not. So um, in a lot of ways, we would be better off doing half as many tests and making sure they got back the same day. Uh, but actually, what we need to do is just invest massive amounts of money. And uh, it's it's hard to do. But look. If you started offering people um, thirty thousand shekel a month to work in testing centers, you'd have a lot of people who suddenly developed a abiding interest in <laughs> um, doing kind of really annoying manual work in um, kind of annoying conditions in bio labs. Um, you can just pay lots of money and get this done. Uh, you know, you should, you need, as far as testing, same day testing. Yeah, if if you want to get this, okay. How do you do notification? Well, you need good systems to do this, or just have lots of people working on it. And like, it's expensive and complicated, and like requires a lot of work to set these systems up. Yeah, I completely. And like, it's not. It's definitely not logistically simple, um, but also it's manageable. You can do that. Um, you know, pay enough, care enough, do enough, and. You can start making a difference. And, and by the way, the Northeast U.S. has shown this. Yeah, they seem to be getting out of it. Yeah, right. um, you, it's doable. Um, even when you start from like super high levels. So this is, this is manageable. There's nothing, there's nothing that's impossible here. It just requires a lot. You mentioned herd immunity. Yeah. Um, and I've always been curious. And again, you know, there, there's so much... There's only so much I can read, and there's only so much I can pay attention to. Um, the, the Sweden case, right? We keep hearing all about the Sweden case, and from my kind of layman's view on this, it seems that they took a very different approach 
than the rest of the world. Do you, can can we talk about, you know, Um, uh, Sweden and herd immunity and did it work? Did it not work? Um, What do we learn from that? So early on, there were two proposed approaches, basically. One was stop the spread and one was what Sweden ended up doing. What the UK started doing, the UK started doing this. They said like, we're just going to let it happen and it'll be fine. Um, the worst possible way to do this is to switch strategies halfway through because all of the costs of controlling things um, are much higher as it spreads. So what the UK did in a lot of ways, um, I, I, I cannot um, tell you whether it would have been better for them to stick to the Sweden strategy longer. I think that ultimately, if you can manage control, that's much better um, but if you can't, then yeah, you shouldn't be you shouldn't be shutting down your economy if you're not going to manage control anyway. Um, that's so. So what that's did Sweden difficult. do? Yeah, so what Sweden exactly. did was basically they said, "Look, um, we think that our people are smart enough to make their own decisions. I, I I won't say that the people in Sweden are smarter than people anywhere else." Um, but the relationship between government and citizens is very different different places. And some places there's just this assumption, you know, the kind of more libertarian approach of like, look, people do what they want. Um, and there's a strain of this in the U.S. certainly. Um, the relationship between government and people, if government just says, look, like we're not going to micromanage, we're going to let people make their own decisions – what ends up happening is lots of people make the smart decision. Lots of people – look, Sweden did not – everybody said like, well, they just didn't shut down and everything was basically fine. They did have much higher fatality rates than other places. They had much higher case counts. Um, but it wasn't disastrous. It was just worse than most other places early on. And they didn't even avoid most of the economic damage because – Huge numbers of people, you know, people who didn't have jobs didn't start going out in public to look for them because it's dangerous. People who did have jobs started trying to work from home as much as possible. Lots of people who had health problems started staying at home. Nobody was going out to bars, even when they weren't shut down, like they were basically deserted. You end it, it doesn't look that different than. But just the government wasn't saying you shut down, you stay open. Right. It was, it was people making those decisions. That led to a higher rate of spread than places that shut down. No question. It led to more deaths than places that shut down. No question. But it also kind of put them on a really clear trajectory to potentially have it spread slowly enough so that they didn't end up with the type of insanely long lines at hospitals that we're starting to see in Florida where the healthcare system is getting overwhelmed quickly that we started to see in New York before they started getting things under control. So um, they really like they flattened the curve. They flattened it enough so that it was a a mess for a long time. But so that that works. And hopefully you hit herd immunity. Now, that's where you need to be really careful about what herd immunity is and isn't. Can can you explain that to, uh, to our listeners? So what happens eventually, um, herd immunity is a status, not a strategy. Um, It can happen lots of different ways. What happens is at some point, enough people don't get sick that they don't spread the disease. One way to achieve herd immunity 
is to keep everybody at home indefinitely so that they spread the disease less. And then it doesn't spread. That's obviously like really economically damaging and a bad idea. Um, But it's effectively the same thing as having lots of people who no longer can get sick because they already got sick. Typically what happens is either lots of people have gotten sick enough so that on average when somebody new gets sick, they make, you know, they have a 50-50 chance of making one additional person sick. And so for each case, you get half of a new case and then a quarter of a new case, and then it ends. Like it, it fades out. That happens on its own because most people can't get sick anymore. That can happen either because most people have had the disease or because they've been vaccinated, which is the great way to do this for most diseases. So we do this with measles and we do this with mumps and we do this, we do this with lots of diseases now where we just we artificially make it so that people have you know already had it. And even though not everybody who gets the vaccine is protected, it's enough so that like when somebody who isn't protected because of the vaccine gets exposed or somebody for medical reasons can't have the vaccine gets exposed, they don't make a lot more people sick because almost everybody's vaccinated. You can do that with vaccines. You can do that with everybody already getting sick. You can also do that with lower levels of people already having gotten sick if people come in contact with one another less frequently. So the threshold for herd immunity depends a lot on exactly um, – how infectious the disease is. Less infectious diseases require um, lower levels of population immunity to reach herd immunity. And there, there's some, um, uh, you know, I don't think you can ever say simple um, when you talk about differential equations, but they're really simple differential equations that you can solve to find uh, where it is that this level is for different diseases. So there's there's this threshold. So the question is, how do you get there? And the answer is lots of different ways. You can vaccinate. You can let people just get sick because you don't have a vaccine available. You can do some combination. You can do either or both of those and reduce the rate at which people interact so that like you have more people work from home and wear masks more. And then like you need a lower level to achieve herd immunity. All of these things in combination can get to that level. But We're nowhere near that level anywhere. You need to have, for COVID, the number seems to be somewhere between 60 and 80% of the population has to have had COVID and recovered and stay immune. And this gets into the, we don't know everything about COVID yet. Right, we're seeing people are getting sick again or maybe never left It's unclear that that's true. So here's, here's the problem. We have... Very clear cases where somebody tests negative and then tests positive later. Right. Okay, yeah, we've seen that. Um, even, even though they had it. And the question is, is that because they tested negative because the test didn't work? You know, no test is 100% accurate. Sure. Some number of tests just didn't, didn't give the right answer. So, and, and the answer is we can't know that really. Um, we have a bunch of cases where somebody has COVID um, and they're diagnosed and then a month later, they get COVID again, even though we're really sure they recovered because we had like three negative test results in a row for them. Um, but maybe that first test result was incorrectly positive. So they never right. really had right. COVID. So it just really looked like it. they did. Um, it's really hard to know that because, you know, it's it's an incorrect test result. How do you know? There are really good reasons from a immunological standpoint to say that it's basically impossible for somebody to get reinfected a week after they recovered. 
Um, and the reason why is just because the way that you recover is that your immune system fights something off. If your immune system fought something off, then your immune system can fight something off. Now, the question of how long it can continue doing that differs. But if it can't keep immunity for a week, then either you're immunocompromised and there are like lots of other issues or um, there's something really strange going on or, or it was a false negative or false positive. Like th- those are the options. But we don't know whether people who get COVID are going to not be able to get COVID six months later. And that's a huge uncertainty. And there are some kind of preliminary reasons to think that that's possible and lots of reasons to think well, that it's unlikely. we get the flu year after year, don't we? I mean, whether, you know, sometimes flu, even if we have the vaccine. Yeah, flu is a really interesting one because uh, to kind of oversimplify, flu isn't really one virus. It's right. like sure. a thousand different viruses. So when you say like H1N1 and H3N2 and like all of these different things, those are very similar but like distinct viruses and you can get different viruses different years obviously you sure. can get a cold and then you can get flu and then you can get cold like there's there's no re, um immunologically there are some complexities there but but you you can get different diseases um flu is nasty and comes back every year because it's really good at mutating and right. changing every year so so they're a little bit different dynamics so is that going to happen with covid probably not um certainly we have almost no indication. People people started screaming, we see mutations in COVID. It yeah. might be able to do this. And the answer is no, no, no. Mutations happen all of the time. Um, what happens with flu is not just like it has a couple of places where it mutates. It actually recombines and looks like really different each time to your immune system. It's a very different type of thing. Um, could COVID recombine with other coronaviruses? Possibly. We haven't seen any evidence that it does. Um are we going to be continued to be protected as it evolves? Probably, unless something really weird happens. Most viruses can't do what flu does. Um, there, there are like kind of some really specific things that um, are beyond where I can uh, confidently talk about because I'm a policy guy who, yeah, no. we're, who we're, has we're, read the bio books. But we're, we're working on getting a biologist uh, yeah. who's an expert on COVID uh, so, on a future episode. So yeah, so there, there are a lot of reasons that this is really complicated, but. If people can get reinfected next year, then her immunity doesn't last. Uh-huh. Is it the case that people won't get won't be permanently protected? We really don't have any way to know yet. If people aren't permanently protected, will a vaccine protect them? Possibly. The way vaccines work is a little bit different. You, there are lots of cases where people don't have long-lasting protection from. Um, getting infected, but do have long-lasting protection from a vi- from a vaccine. There are lots of places where um, you can get a booster shot every ten years for tetanus and be um, you know be okay with that. Yeah. Um, like there, there are, so there's a lot of complexity there. Um, we're not going to know exactly how well vaccines do for a lot after we know that we have one and it's safe and it's this effective. We we don't know if it confers like really long-lasting protection. So there are tons of uncertainties here. Um, and as I've said a couple of times, the point is. Which approach should you take to fixing this? All of them. Do all of them. Do lots of all of them because... Overkill. Um, yeah, because stopping COVID a month earlier than you otherwise would is probably worth something like a trillion dollars. And that's a really big number. So if you spend a, you know insane amount, like, I don't know, a trillion dollars to do it, that was probably a good decision. 
So, yeah, we should be doing everything. But yet we're not. No. So so now we come into the to the to the intersection of human interactions and politics and what is known to be right and do we decide to do it or not and and for example you mentioned vaccines we were talking about you know what what will make them uh, last or, or or you know herd immunity it begs the question you know here we are all over the west the you know all over the world we've we've kind of stopped we we, we locked down our economies have shut down. Um, you know, millions and millions and millions of people are unemployed. How do we go back? At what point do people start to feel in individual countries? And we can talk about Israel because here we are. Uh, when do we get to go back to a semblance of what was before? Um, is it when there's a vaccine, even though we have yet to prove its, effic- its effectiveness? Is it when people psychologically just get over the feeling of fear is it by is decree it when we get really fast testing so there are lots of different things that can happen lots of different end games that we could and, get and, to. And, and before you go it just seems to me that there are all these ideas there are very brilliant people uh who have said things similar to what you just said of you know we if we just do this or we can do that or you know every every other day you see an article come out in the newspaper about some new innovation that's going yeah. to do this or that and nothing seems to ever tangibly get done. It feels like we're in the same place we've been in for months. Why can't somebody just pull the trigger and do something? Yeah, There's a really interesting paper that came out recently um, that I'm not going to remember the, the authors of, unfortunately, that looked at why people are uncertain about when experts tell, say things. And the answer is, in short... Uh, I think that the topic was climate change. It's not that people say there is uncertainty. It's not that um, it's not that people say we fundamentally don't know the answer because it's complicated. That that doesn't reduce trust in experts. What reduces trust in experts a huge amount is when experts can't agree on what it is that's known and what right, it is that right, will work. Right. right now, everybody's shouting at each other. We should do this. No, we should do this. No, we should do are this. Are there actually and experts shouting at each other, or is it experts are saying A and then kind of. There are experts shouting you know, at each other. Talking heads on the news who are not experts, but they sound smart, are saying B. There are, there are experts shouting at one another. But what's happening about those experts shouting at one another is they're saying, look, we know that there's lots of uncertainty. We know that there are lots of different ways to deal with this. We're pretty sure that this method will be the best one. And the other expert says, I agree with you on all the uncertainties. I think that this number is like probably 3% higher than you think, and this other number is 2% lower than you think, and that means that I think this other strategy will be better. But they don't usually say it as, I think this is different and this is different and therefore... So there was a debate that happened on a paper that I'm working on where one group of people said we should be doing A and another group of people said we should be doing B. And basically the disagreement boils down to do you think we can roll out a ton more testing quickly enough? And the answer, according to both groups, is maybe, but we're not sure. But 
which thing you should do depends a lot on that. On the, on the number of And so we have like lots of uncertainties. There are lots of different things that we don't know. And phrasing this as experts can't agree about what to do right. is I think just misleading. It is because misleading. They, they, you're right. They can't agree. Like it's, you know, that the headline says something you're like, well, you know, the, the truthometer or whatever the, the fact checkers say mostly true, but completely misleading. Um, in fact, everybody agrees that lots of these different things will help and we should be doing as many of them as we can. And because there's limited political attention and there's limited political capital to do different things and things end up contentious for reasons that are um, just frustrating. We don't do everything. And if, if the fight is, look, we only have $50 billion to do something. Which strategy should only. we pursue? <laughs> only. But that's, that's what we're talking about losing, you know, a large multiple of that a month because of, right. right. Like this is, this is, you know, look, okay. So let's talk about what the cost is per person in the U S you're like, yeah. So like 200 bucks a person in the U S is it worth fixing COVID for 200 bucks per person. Yes. Sounds it like is it. definitely worth definitely. it. There's no question. Um, is it worth a thousand dollars per person in the U S yeah. Like there's, there's no question. Well, those numbers are really different. Sure. Okay. But like we should be spending a lot of money on making sure that this ends. But when you're arguing over the $200 a person and that's not enough to do everything, then yeah, there's a real disagreement about which, which approach will be better. And the answer, I think, uh, which is politically hard because it's hard to say, yeah, we're spending another trillion dollars. Trillion seems like a really big number. And like, not that it isn't, but you're talking about the global economy. You're talking sure. about huge amounts here. Spending a trillion dollars makes sense to do something here. So experts are arguing about, you know, we can't walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. Which one should we, we be doing? And the answer is please learn to walk and chew bubble gum. Yeah. Please spend enough money so you can do all of these things. Please allow different groups to pursue different approaches and fund all of them. You know, which vaccine should we be manufacturing? It costs a couple billion dollars to build a vaccine manufacturing plant. That's a lot of money. We're not sure which vaccine will work. Which manufacturing plant should we build? Yeah. Well, all of them. Build all of them quickly. Like, oh, well, we don't know. We might have wasted, we might have accidentally wasted uh, $5 billion by building these two plants that we end up not needing. Good, do, do that. Like, we, we should be throwing money at this because we're not sure, because there are lots of uncertainties, because are we going to end up looking back and saying, wow, like, if only we had realized, yeah, if only we had realized, if only we had realized that this was a big deal six months ago, we'd be in a really different situation. I'd rather regret overreacting now, well, this, yeah, and this, we're still not overreacting. This goes back to your to the military, um, you know, parallel. We were saying, okay, well, you have all these very expensive platforms, and you never use them in war, but you know, kind of having them help maybe help prevent the war. Maybe it yeah. helped. Right? You invest all this money now, and maybe use some of it, and maybe you don't. That's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I hope someone's listening to. Uh, to what you're saying what what's this uh, paper you're working on now and and um, oh. who, who you, you're doing oh. something with oxford right which one okay so so I, I i will say somebody a number of people have said wow this must be uh really great professionally for you and my response is 
I work on catastrophic risks. When they happen, it's super bad, and I'd rather that my research is never actually relevant. Rather, like that would be a be much better deal. That would be much better for everyone. If I look back in 50 years and say, wow, after COVID, I did tons of work and none of it ended, ever ended up being relevant, I will retire a happy person and the world will be better. Um, but yeah, there, there are a couple of different things I'm working on. So I'll, I'll, I'll zoom out a little bit and talk about why I'm working with Oxford. There's, when I when I was back when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a mathematician, and eventually I decided that I there are some parts of math that I don't do well and I'm miserable with. So I decided to do something more applied, um, and I ended up deciding to go to grad school for public policy because I wanted to do something positive. And the question was, okay, so there are lots of causes in the world. What should I focus on? And this is like a really big question. There's a movement started by a couple of philosophers who asked, like, hey. Philosophy has lots of arguments, but like we don't tell people what to do and we don't actually do those things. What should we actually do to make the world better? Yeah. And their answer was, we probably need to do some economic analysis to figure out what matters. So they launched what is now known as effective altruism, which is, look, you have, you know, you're, you're giving, let's say you're giving MICER because you should be giving MICER because it's a really good thing to do. Um, what should you do with that money? Because you're giving, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars away a year. And where does it go? And most people's answer is, well, you know, the local school needs some money. And, um, you know, it makes me feel really warm and fuzzy inside when I see um, that money is given to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. But, but you're like, saying, where should you approach this economically if you want to make the biggest impact? Right. With if you giving? care about actually making the world better. No, I'm, I'm not saying that feeling warm and fuzzy inside is a bad thing. Um, but one of, the, one of the lines that somebody from this movement has that I think is, is useful is, you should purchase your warm, fuzzy feelings separately. <laughs> you're giving away $1,000. Look, write the $10 check to... The, the charity that, that you know, makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside, and then give the rest of your money to actually saving tons of lives um, because you can do that because there are, like, really effective things that you can do. Okay. What's this, so, what's this called again, this movement? Effective altruism. There's a, there's a group in Israel, Effective Altruism Israel. There are lots of international things. There's an organization called Giving What We Can, which is an organization that kind of helps people figure out what they should be doing. There are a bunch of charities. Give Well. Um, is fantastic, and they actually do lots. They they employ a bunch of economists to actually like tell you answers. Like, hey, if you care about global education, where should you give your money? If you care about saving lives, where should you give your money? If you care about preventing large scale disasters, where should you give your money? And so that last one is, you know, one of the really good things we could do is prevent really large disasters. So there's a group at Oxford called the Future of Humanity Institute. I love it. Yeah, it's it is right? super awesome sounding. It's great. And Do you guys have shirts. Oh man, they 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 have. Uh, I you know they're not so into merchandising. I've I've mentioned they this totally before. Should. I really they need I really write them like you know like a patron. You know, how do you you know? Um, this is uh, I'm I'm working with somebody there whose whose tagline is basically we need to stop thinking so short term. The real question is what humanity is going to do over the next trillion years. So, like, there, there are people who are thinking, like, really large-scale. And one of the really important large-scale things to do is make sure people are around still. Right. Yeah, right. So. Don't die. Right. This is, this is good advice. Or, um, or at what point do the robots take over? Yeah. So they, they, they talk about that a lot. So the question is, 
if you're trying to figure out how you can do a lot of good, one of the things you should focus on is making sure that really big catastrophes don't happen. So I got a little bit involved talking to these people, and I had done some work in grad school on infectious disease research, and they said, we're really interested in infectious disease policy. And this was three years ago. And so I started working with some of these people. I'm like, hey, let's, let's figure out, like, what are the odds of natural pandemics? And I have a paper from 2018 that says everybody's estimates of the risk of natural pandemics are overconfident and lower than is probably justified. The risk is probably higher than we think. Maybe we should be more worried about this. Um, I, I, I will modestly claim that I was right about that. So there's, there's a lot of work in that world that started looking at, hey, like, how could this go wrong? So a lot of the work that I'm looking at is on like, hey, what should we do about COVID right now? But most of my research agenda, most of what I'm trying to work on is COVID is really bad. Could there be something worse? Right. What would we do then? Could because there, Could there be? So one of the problems that we have is that it's really hard to talk about very improbable events. Okay. So um, if I ask you how likely is it um, that uh, you'll get hit by lightning? I don't know. One, one in a million. Whatever. Well, it's it's right. a small number. Enough right? that you don't worry about it. Enough well, that it's I don't a, it's about. a small number. Okay, great. So, but But when there's a lightning storm, I'm not standing under trees. Right. right? Because you know that it's not one in a you know quintillion. You know that people do get hit by lightning. Sure. Okay. So would, um, it, give, would it give me superpowers? No. No, it would not. Do you do you ever talk about that at the future of humanity? Uh, not not lightning. No, we we don't talk about getting hit by lightning. No, but something like cyborgs. Like, they're they're into you not know, cyborgs. I want I want to become a superhero from like. Replace dude, replace your arms dude, and legs with with mechanical I don't want to replace stuff, my and you can, and and you can fly. Great. I, look, I I I I he think that I think that we can confidently. Th- there are lots of uncertainties involved in all these things, and um, I, we can confidently recommend not getting hit by lightning. That's that's going to be on my. Uh, maybe we should maybe we should not debate this and just tell people okay. not to. Um, <laughs> so so the question is, how much money should we be spending on preventing pandemics? Right. Um, is the answer a billion dollars a year? No, it's higher than that. Is it a trillion dollars a year? Maybe that's uh, like in general uh, not completely crazy number. It seems a little bit. High. Should it's we spend an unfathomable number though? Right. Should we right. spend a quadrillion dollars a year? That's that's more than the global world world product. Right. It's, we we don't have that. Yeah. It's it's a, a solid like twelve times global world. Product. It would be like devoting the the the, the sum of everybody's world, labor everybody only to that world. all the okay. time. So if we thought that the probability that a pandemic would kill everybody was, say, 1 in 10, then I would say, yeah, actually, everybody in the world should drop everything and fix this. If we think that the probability that a pandemic like COVID arises is 1 in 50 per year, then a trillion dollars is probably ballpark, you know, maybe 10 times too much, maybe about right. You know, there, there are some discussions there. But... The problem is that knowing what number we should assign to like these really rare events is hard. Sure. So knowing how much we should spend on it, it, what we can say and really, really confidently is that we spend too little worrying about very unlikely events and we should be more concerned about like really bad things that might happen. So, so what are we worrying about that's, that we shouldn't be and what aren't we worrying about that we should be? So this is everybody in 
the risk analysis community will tell you kind of the same things. Uh, the community? I was, yeah, oh, res- the research community. They're, they're okay. um, you know, talk about depressing conversations. So um, when I lived in Washington Heights, I was walking back to my apartment and I saw kind of a, an accident on the road. I wasn't sure exactly what happened. I kind of walked closer. I asked somebody who was walking away, hey, what happened? And they said, oh, I, I think it was just a car accident. And I said, oh, uh, is anybody hurt? And they go, I don't know. I was just, you know, you always have to worry about terrorism. And at the time, living in New York, I was, I was doing reinsurance risk modeling um, focused in large part on terrorism. And my response is, no, 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 you don't. You have to worry about getting hit by a car. Right. Getting hit by a car is much more likely and much more dangerous than terrorism. Terrorism happens much more rarely. Like True. No, Even people, here in Israel. Right? Yeah, people are... <laughs> uh, Israel's doing a pretty good job about... Reducing traffic fatalities, I think. So we got what a few hundred traffic fatalities a year, and and they're working on getting it lower. And they're getting working on getting the number of of traffic fatalities lower. And it's it's a really it's a good thing. Like this is we're we're kind of we're doing a good job. Okay, yeah, (laughs) we're doing a good job focusing on some of the high. Look, you know, so if you want to know, like on a personal level, what should you be doing to keep yourself safer and living longer? I'm going to give you all of the really boring answer. Get enough sleep, exercise, eat right, go to a doctor occasionally and look, just get look, a checkup. And look both ways before you cross the street. Yeah, like these are these are the, you know, don't speed, um, wear your seatbelt. Like these are all the like boring, but do all of them. Just like make sure you do all of those things. As humanity as a whole, what should we be worrying about? Well, um, a lot of the people who are funding effective altruism are kind of the man on the street who wants to save lives, and that's really wonderful. A couple of the people who are funding a lot of this have really large amounts of money. If you're a millionaire and you want to reduce your risk of getting hurt, so you do all of the obvious things, but you have a lot of extra money, um, so what do you do? Well, maybe you do something like uh, you know, make sure that you have uh, you know a month of supplies in a bunker under your house. That's uh, getting kind of paranoid, but okay. Let's say you have a billion dollars. Well, you you can't reduce your risk very much more spending. Like you buy an island, great, and then what do you do with like all of the rest of your money? Um, and the answer is you need to start looking at larger scale global events mm-hmm. because it's no longer likely that you're gonna. Um, you know, be hit by a car because you have, you know, all you do all the right things. So humanity as a whole needs to focus on larger scale risks, things that will kill lots of people. Like what? So pandemics are high up on the list. We're worried not that they're frequent, not that they're likely. Uh, you want to know what the probability is that um, a pandemic disease will emerge and kill, let's say, more than half of the people on Earth, I would tell you it's less than one in a trillion a year. It's a small number. But if it's one in a trillion a year, we should probably be paying some level of attention to it. Um, if it's one in a quadrillion year uh, a year, then we should be paying a lower level of attention. Um, we're not sure where that number is. Getting a better idea is probably pretty useful. Uh, if... We have a nuclear war. That would be really bad. We don't want that to happen. It could kill lots and lots of people. We should be and, – and by the way, people are spending money on pandemic preparedness. They're spending money on reducing risk of nuclear war. Uh, if we build artificial intelligence systems and they go bad, yeah, how likely is that? That's a really, really difficult question. We don't know. Are you guys talking about that? Yeah. The future of Yeah, humanity? so it's, it's a big question. We don't know. Um, and – 
the problem here is like we don't know is a much more worrying answer than yeah. so should we worry about asteroid large asteroids hitting earth and the answer is we should worry some we should make sure that there's a satellite up there that's like cataloging all of the near earth objects and seeing if any of them are going to hit earth we have one of those just if if anybody's worried um we're pretty clear that we're tracking everything it's not going to happen you know this is like one in a quadrillion that something like that happens and we don't notice it for long enough that we can't do it like we've we've addressed some of those things um, otherwise we have to send ben affleck to space to, yeah uh, well right, you know that's so screwed know, dated 90s reference for anyone who got that. yeah um but like we we also have uh you know bruce willis i'm i'm really happy that's right bruce willis. Um, i'm really happy that uh um, elon musk has a bunch of spaceships that he can launch at a comet we can probably put some nukes on or whatever like we could do something about that um how worried are we about super volcanoes? They're really rare. That's a but, thing. Oh, are you serious? Um, super volcanoes, dude. I know what a regular volcano is. Yellowstone Park is the caldera of a super volcano. Imagine a volcano. It last erupted six hundred forty million state. years ago. What? Yeah, it's dude. really unlikely to erupt again in the next million years or so. But. Really unlikely isn't quite enough, right? We want to be a little bit more confident than it's really unlikely. Wait, what happens if a super volcano erupts? Uh, the amount of ash that gets um, put into the atmosphere is enough so that global agriculture starts getting really hard for a couple of years. And um, Wait, what, what happened in, uh, was it Iceland uh, a few years back? Yeah, with the name of yeah, the volcano. Yeah, the the Yokel. Yokel. Holy crap, Say you can pronounce so that? It, that, that's Good, that's what happens when you work Dude. in catastrophe risk Say modeling. It. You spend your time Wait, learning to pronounce Love it. Um, when so, this thing yeah, is written on paper, it looks just like yeah, a bunch it, of... It's just like, like 10 like, consonants yeah. in a yeah. row. Yeah. Right? It's, it's weird. Um, but like you have to learn how to pronounce it because if you work at a risk modeling company, that's what they name their uh, conference rooms. They name them after disasters. It's it's weird. Um, they, they have very macabre <laughs> senses of humor. Wow. So Well, the, the super volcano thing is interesting. I was watching one of these programs about how the, how the dinosaurs... That's what I do. How the dinosaurs uh, went extinct and... and, and they asked the question, okay, so the asteroid collided with the Yucatan Peninsula. It had all the ejecta go up into the atmosphere. It gets dark and cold. So what, it was like a lengthy thing? It took them a couple of months before they ran out of food? Or was it like relatively instant? And when what happened on this day? Uh, I'm going to correct myself. I was not listening, watching one of these shows. I think it was a Radiolab podcast which talked about this. Uh, if you're shaking your head, maybe you, you listen to it. They, they've, done, they've done some things on... There's a very... Stable theory that what ended up actually killing the dinosaurs and the amount of time that it actually took was not measured in months, but it was measured in hours, if not days. And how did that happen around the world is that the ash that goes up into the atmosphere is at such a temperature that it actually turns the atmosphere itself into glass shards. Holy crap. And then if it happens, you basically you're just breathing glass and then that kills you. Is that a scenario? This is bad. We should make sure that doesn't happen. No, so so first of all, have um, you talked about glass shards, super volcanoes? It turns out, it turns this out, is why I need superpowers. By it the turns way. out that we know how to we know how to fix that. Go indoors and have a filter on your AC system. Seriously, like this is like we actually know <laughs> that that this is like there are people who spend some time looking at this. But yeah, having an N95 filter on your on your uh, AC, like that'll that'll actually for large buildings, especially like there's that'll yeah, keep people, out the glass shards raining from the sky. Yeah. Um, now we'll have other problems afterwards. Like you want to be able to grow things, and there's no like, sunlight. Yeah, there's no sunlight for like there are a lot of bad things that happen. Um, we should make sure that we send somebody up to plant a nuclear device on the asteroid before it hits. Fine. 
Um, like we, we, there are people, you know, how much, how much money should we spend preparing for this as a scenario? Not a quadrillion dollars, not a trillion dollars, but you want a couple people somewhere. And there are a couple people somewhere that, you know, spent a little bit of time thinking about it, making sure, um, solar flares that knock out the global electrical grid are one of those things that like is kind of this could be really bad and is fairly likely it happens every century or so. Um, and like, it'd be bad if electricity went out everywhere for like a month or two. Yeah. Um, yeah, that'd be like, that could be like really catastrophic. So we have people thinking about this, making sure that there are stockpiles of transformers to replace the ones that blow up when you have a solar storm. Like there are people who have spent time thinking about this. One of the big questions again is, so which of these are we most worried about? Which ones are we least certain about? So is there a master list somewhere? Uh, is there that, are a bunch is that of the debate no, constantly of people. You know, how people to discuss these. this. You'll you know go to if if you visit Oxford and want to walk into Future of Humanity. One of the con, one of the kind of do conversations. Yeah, it's an awesome place. I I highly recommend. By the way, one of the problems that they have is that um, occasionally random people wander up um, with like book length treatments of what it is that we should do if an asteroid hits earth and the type of person who like has no background in this and like doesn't know to email before showing up (laughs) Um, yeah these are these are weird people and they they show up kind of randomly so maybe call ahead um but um, has anybody ever dropped off something where you look at it and it's like oh actually this makes good sense i didn't think about that i i i haven't heard any stories like that I think that most of the time when people have good ideas, they also know how to use email. Right. And um, look, you know, this is this is a modern world. But one of the conversations that you hear kind of not regularly, but like so like order of magnitude, what do you think the risk of this is? They're like, oh, like, you know, my my estimate is somewhere in this range. Oh, really? Like, why is it so high? That's weird. And like people will have a conversation. Well, we, you know, we looked at this and like, if you correct for this and, you know, they have like these super, um, you know, mathematical conversations about uh, Bayesian risk modeling and how it is that you um, estimate these things. So yeah, that's, that's a, that's a conversation that happens. I, I gotta ask. I mean, Oxford, when I think of Oxford in my head, at least it's kind of like old fancy, right? English university. You think that they're people that are like studying at Hogwarts? No, 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 no. Oh, no. oh yes. No, I'm going in a different direction. I'm, I'm thinking the, the future of humanity Institute. Is it in a new futuristic looking building or is it like in a building from like the 1700s? So I, I, I've made this um, observation a number of times. Uh, Can you pull it up? I want to see a picture. If you've, if you've dealt with um, university bureaucracies, yeah, they're kind of a pain to deal with. Sure. Um, it's kind of difficult. Imagine um, starting a university and having like the bureaucracy accumulate like garbage and difficulty and like all things for like a thousand years. No, that's literally what happened. Yeah, it's an old university. They, that's literally what happened. They've been there for like close to a thousand years. Um, getting anything done there is so. Uh, no, they're in a wait, old wait, beat up wait, wait. building. They're trying the, to move into a new one. So, so it's not this building. No. No, it's it's not in that one. That building's awesome. But does it look like that? No, it's it's in a beat up kind of like you know nineteen seventies building. They do have a lot of really awesome. <laughs> it's in a building buildings. that looks like every building in Israel. Yeah, that's kind of disappointing. Right? Yeah, no, it's uh, well, if you walk down the main street, you do. It's uh, there. There was a picture I saw a couple weeks ago. Somebody said like it was a picture from like 
1910 of the main street in Oxford, and then a picture from today. And the difference is that they put a median in the middle of the street that's grassy and they have little bike lanes. And that's it. Like those are the only differences. The buildings are exactly the same. Um, one of them, uh, one of them is, has like had some stuff added, but like really like it looks exactly the wow. same. It is a cool place to walk around. Um, you can go visit where, uh, Lewis Carroll wrote, um, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, cool. Like, like it's, it's a cool place to visit. I, I, I like going to visit. My kids keep on telling me that they want to come with me to England. How often do you go? Uh, when when there's not yeah, a global perhaps. pandemic, sure, sure. Uh, once or twice a year. Okay, wait. So, so I'm going to bring this back. Because yeah. this is, people are listening to this and well, we hope. like me, maybe they're working in an industry that's been seriously affected by this. Um, you know, you want to go back to Oxford once a year, twice yeah. a year. When you guys are mapping out how these catastrophic risks might play out, do you have an end game with them? Is it yeah. like... So there are, I think I said before, there are a couple of end games. It's not clear exactly which one happens. Places like New Zealand, the end game was they got everything under control and now they have, uh, you know, they let tourists in from places that don't have lots of cases. Right. Um, we were almost there. Yeah. Um, we could get back there. Like we, we really could. Like if, if we wanted to spend lots of money and try everything, we could be back there in a month or two. If we don't do that, we're looking at in the ballpark of no earlier than January before there are vaccine, like a lot of vaccines available enough to do something. And even then, like you make the vaccine and then you know, how many vaccine, how many doses of vaccine do you need um, for COVID? Well, it might be that everybody needs uh, two shots, which means you need 16 billion doses for the world. So we're we're going to be making lots and lots of vaccines. So I I imagine the public conversation is going to shift um, in like three months to hey like it looks like this vaccine is being approved. How many doses are they made? Only a billion. Like we need to we need to get on this. That's a lot. Yeah, doses. Yeah, but it's um, not nearly enough. To but be we need eight billion doses for everyone, and then we need well, you to don't and, need it for everyone. Look, five million people in New Zealand they don't need vaccines. They're going to buy vaccines anyway. Um, no, so so this so, is. I'm, start, exactly. I'm starting to think about which pharmaceutical companies I should start investing in. Oh, you're way too late. Um, they've been, too late? They've been talking about that for a while. Right. Um, <laughs> we should so, have had you on so, the show a month ago. So, so the thing is, the there's there's a bunch of different vaccines. We're not sure exactly which one is going to be more effective. Um, we're going to end up with – it's. I, I would I would give uh, 95% um, confidence that by January we will at least know – that there is one of the vaccines that's like starting to get manufactured that will be effective enough to manage this. Um, there's some chance that like um, the Moderna vaccine ends up getting, they're already producing um, millions and millions of doses. So uh, that'll be available in October, November, if it gets approved, maybe. They'll start, it'll start like rolling out. Right, like it could be, if everything goes right, if if you have ever planned a large project, I have. Okay, and and you know your timeline is okay. So uh, I expect it to take four months. It never does. Right. Um, if everything goes right, it would have taken four months. Sure. And you know, eight months later, you're like, wow, I think I'm finally close to done. <laughs> so uh, if everything goes right, we could have we could have doses. I was, I was hoping November. to have my book out months ago, right? And just going through editing and uh, peer review process. Everything has taken takes longer than you expect, but everything. The flip side is 
the world has been actually smart about pouring huge amounts of resources into this. So originally people said, you know, 18 months is the fastest we could even imagine because usually vaccines take three or four years yeah. to produce. And people have been doing mostly the right thing to get that done much, okay. much faster. Let's... And so it's like, that's, that's hopeful. And then you um, got to get people to take them. Uh, most people. So going back to the conspiracy um, theory uh, discussion, People really like anti-vax conspiracy theories when they're pretty sure the risk is really low. There were people who didn't want to get the measles vaccine two years ago. Because nobody had measles. Right. Because measles, like who's ever had we measles? We wiped it out from the world. Because we're all friggin' vaccinated against measles. And, okay, There's good. Measles. And then you started getting outbreaks. And all the people who said, like, well, it's not such a big... You had the, the gedolim in Israel say, no, no, you actually need to get vaccinated. Yeah. This is not an option. You had, um, you know, leaders across the world. All of the anti-vax people um, were still screaming. But 90% of the people who had, like, kind of listened to them changed their mind when they started seeing that people actually die. I'm very optimistic that... People are uh, most the the significant majority of people are aware enough that COVID is a thing that they will get the vaccine. Yeah, there's going to be crazy conspiracy theories, but I think that um, mostly it won't make a huge difference. One of the real risks is that um, we rush a vaccine through without doing the safety testing. Yeah, and then you and, get some and not. That um, it ends up worse than not having it because I think that that's vanishingly unlikely. But like if you have one in 200 people end up with, um, let's say, migraine headaches for six months, everybody said, see, vaccines are bad. And you're like, no, 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 we should still do this. Like that's a low risk. Um, If you end up with one in every 20,000 people dying because of the vaccine, that would be horrifically bad and you're still probably better off. Um, having everybody get the vaccine, You're, you'd be better off catching that beforehand. But um, but the backlash from not knowing that beforehand is really big. So the vaccine's not going to become the zombie apocalypse. No, uh, we do enough testing that that's uh, one of the. I come back. You can't come back, the Hulk. No. Can you guys come up with something? You, the future of humanity, institute to make me a superhero. I mean, I'm going to keep coming back to you gotta, this. You got yeah. to drop this. Yes. Zombie apocalypse. You are a superhero super to your volcanoes. children, man. You're a superhero to your children. I'm really not. <laughs> you got to work on that. Your kids get old enough and that stops happening. It's yeah. true. My three-year-old, yeah, I'm like I'm like Superman and Batman and, and the Hulk all rolled into one. Like, I'm amazing. My, my uh, <laughs> almost eight-year-old, just this old man who wanders around and tells him to do things sometimes. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's really. I'm in the eye roll phase. You're not there yet. Oh, my daughter gives I'm me the eye rolls. I'm getting the eye rolls. She's, she's five going on 15. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that, that happens. So, so yeah. Um. <laughs> See, so you did your PhD at the RAND Corporation. Now, I happen to know of the RAND Corporation. Um, uh, I'm in the policy world. I was in the military for a long time, and they do amazing work on defense stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I happen to know a professor there. But what, it, it just sounds really cool. I mean, what is the RAND Corporation? Can you okay. uh, so, give, us, uh, give us the scoop here? In, during World War II... The U.S. military spent a lot of money on research and development, um, and they tried to come up with a good acronym and failed miserably. So R and D Rand, right? But um, no connection with Ann Rand. No connection. Anyway, um, what are you going to call your company? I'm going to call it Company. Right. <laughs> it was. It was not imagined. The company. But the CIA. During, That's true. 
Yeah, during during World War II, the military had like all of these people. The Air Force mostly had all of these people like doing like great research that was like super interesting and super amazing that like they pulled in from academia. And then after the war, the Air Force was like, yeah, we want to keep them. And the government was like, you can't just like keep all the academics. That yeah, doesn't work. Yes, you can. <laughs> um, and, and the Ford Foundation gave a bunch of money and the military funded some of it. And they put together basically a, a think tank before think tanks were a thing. Yeah, this was, I mean, this was really the first think yeah, tank, it was wasn't it? Really before think tanks were a thing. Um, they are completely and aggressively nonpartisan. They are um, really, they, they do really high quality research that sure. is very well respected. Um one of the one of the problems with this is that when somebody goes to RAND to ask for an analysis, sometimes it doesn't turn out the way that they want, um, and that's always interesting and fun. You like you you quadruple check check your results instead of just you know triple checking them when like it's going to make people upset. But um, you know, so they, they do a lot of research. So in the seventies and eighties, they started doing more work on things like healthcare. They do a lot on the environment and. Uh, there's a other famous things. story. I think Malcolm Gladwell has a whole episode about it, about mm-hmm. the involvement of Rand in the Vietnam War. Yeah, that, that was story? interesting. So I had a professor. Um, if anybody's heard of the Pentagon Papers, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so those were were leaked um, from Rand by uh, um, a guy who who now writes books about how. Uh, nuclear war would be really bad and we need to be careful about it. Um, and uh, you're not talking about that, but he he leaked a bunch of classified information. So a professor of mine uh, who passed away a couple of years ago um, was head of RAND at the time and was the person who fired him. And when I found that out, I was like, wow, that's like super interesting. I want to ask him about it. And one of the people was like, don't ask Charlie about it. He's still like super upset and like emotional. Like he gets really upset about this. I was like, it's been decades. He's like, he's still mad about this one. Um, they were they were involved in a lot of things, some of which were just, yeah, bad strategic blunders. A lot of which were, look, if your goal is to do these things, this is what you should do. And they were probably right about it, but there were some strategic issues with um, maybe winning a war in Southeast Asia wasn't like the top priority when you compare it to like the human rights abuses. Right. Um, the flip side is, I think people people have. I I certainly had this really weird vision of like, wow, the Cold War was like this really weird and ridiculous thing where like it was America versus the communists, and like that that whole thing was super overblown and like it like. Wow, in retrospect, it seems so stupid. And then you actually look back and you're like, no, actually, like, there was real, like, maybe we were wrong, but there was a real reason to be worried sure. that, like, if the communists took over, sure. it would be really bad. So, Vietnam War, yeah, there were some blunders there, but, like, I, I don't know that it's really obvious, except in retrospect, that they shouldn't have done some of the things that they did. So, think tanks are a really cool place, especially. You know, in places like this where not everything's published, a lot of stuff is done, uh, you know, kind of. Sure. Right. To come up with crazy ideas that make a lot of sense. And, and we were kind of, you know, discussing this before we started taping mm-hmm. here. So um, give us a couple, a couple of these kind of ideas that might sound really crazy. But if you just 
took away all the politics, took away all the social norms and just looked at the numbers that they would be like, oh, this would be this would actually be really sensible to do. So I'll give you two really quick examples um, that are funny because it was a long time ago. And in retrospect, you're like, oh, um, the first one is uh, the Hyperloop that Musk is talking about. Yeah, that was originally an idea published in like a 1950-something white paper that was public from Rand. Mm -hmm. Um, Somebody's like, hey, we we could probably do this. Like the tech isn't quite there, but like this seems really interesting. Um, And yeah, it took uh, 50 years, but now like they're actually building some of these. So that's- Are they really? Yeah. This is like what? This is basically like a giant hyper, I don't know, sonic tube that- Yeah, it's, it's a tube that- pushes people around really fast in like little capsules yeah. and they're Musk has built some tunnels underground a couple places and they're already like they're building them. We'll see how cost effective it is and whether it's like actually much better than just having the Metro or whatever, but like they're doing it. Uh, the other one that I thought was super interesting because there was a pile of stuff that was getting declassified. Um, like, Oh, like this is now declassified from like the, uh, 50s and 60s and 70s because like some things stay classified for a while and one of the things in there was an analysis of so they're thinking about maybe installing these devices in like the entrance to places like um, the White House that could detect whether somebody has a weapon by noticing if there's metal on them <laughs> and they build it into the doorway. This sounds like something that's just and it's so a metal detector. Right, it's right, right, just right, right. the metal detector. And the conclusion was you can't really do this in a way that like um, doesn't have a really high false positive rate because like anytime somebody walks in with their keys, it's going to no- you know you're going to notice them. So like it doesn't help very much unless like you require people to take everything out of their right. pockets. And at that point, it's not like a good way to do this. You might as well just pat them down. Um, which was probably the right conclusion when you're talking about like, you know, it, it'll cost $50 million to build the first metal detector. Um, but it's just like really interesting. But what, what are some crazy then, yeah, ideas now, now that people are talking now, about that we think they're just nuts, but maybe in 50 or 100 years we'll say, oh, this is the way things are done now because that makes so I'll give you, sense. I'll give you two cool ideas. One of them is prediction markets. So it should be possible to go online and bet money on whether the economy will go up under um, a situation where Netanyahu loses the next election versus if he wins. You should just be able to go online and bet. And then, to go online and bet on the outcome of an election? No, whether the economy, if, if he wins, does the economy go up more than a certain amount? Like what you can bet on how much you think the, you can, you can place a bet that like um, GDP growth will be more than 3% if he loses or it'll be higher than this if he wins. And then like you use all of this data and you say like, hey, like it turns out that like the people who have money riding on this and it turns out that um, prediction markets are like really actually pretty good at predicting things because people have money on the line and they do a good job with this. Um, yeah, the prediction markets say that Netanyahu is good for the economy. Like if you care about the economy, you should reelect him. Or um, it turns out that Netanyahu is bad for the peace process. The prediction markets say that it's much less likely that we get there if he wins or like – All of these things, and people can just go and look it up. And the reason why people are super unhappy with this is because— It's a way of using betting tools to to see what's actually going to happen. Yeah. Right. And it's it's pretty efficient, and it's pretty—and the reason why people don't like it is because it seems really weird to let people bet money on, like, hey, like, 
Are more people going to die of this disease if we do A or if we do B? And it seems suddenly like, ooh, this is like really creepy. Or when this was launched in the U.S., there was a um, market for terrorism. If we do this, are there going to be more terrorist attacks or fewer? And everybody's like, people are winning money if there are terrorist attacks. That's horrible. And like I get why that feels like really spooky. But also, don't you kind of want to know whether – getting people to take their shoes off at airports is going to prevent terrorist attacks? Because if it isn't, then we shouldn't be doing this. Sure. So, like, there are some interesting things there. Um, And then there are some kind of far-out tech things that I think... um, One of them is uh, another thing that I think is, like, super underinvested in relative to what it is that we should be doing um, is longevity research. It turns out that getting old isn't a disease. (laughs) So most people... um, you. Don't fund research into stopping it. But it turns out that like most of the things that go wrong with people are like specific things that go wrong. Arterial hardening. Oh, let's address arterial hardening because right. that leads to, um, you know, okay, so like let's fix cholesterol. But if you look at aging as a whole, there are a lot of things that might just be able to be fixed. And yeah, it's like with elephants, right? You know, do you know why elephants die so young? Because they no lose idea. their teeth. Mm. In the wild, in the wild, right. right? They lose their teeth. If you can, there's no evolutionary them. advantage in surviving after you have your kids and you raise them. Sure. So, like evolution selects for people dying after that, um, which is uh, non-ideal from a personal perspective, because um, I've had my kids and they're like getting old enough that, like, in another right. decade they'll you raise them, and don't. I don't want to die then, um, <laughs> and I probably won't because modern medicine is pretty good. Uh, but no, but evolutionarily speaking, once your kids are old enough to have kids of their own, you're done, right? There's small effects from having grandparents around. But yeah, I mean, mostly mostly it just doesn't, you know, we didn't evolve to live for a really long time because there's no benefit. But uh, it's it's very plausible that if we spent, you know, I don't know, $100 billion a year for the next 20 years, we could change that really drastically. Um, and if you ask most people, you know, should the U.S. government be um, spending, uh, you know, a uh, hundred billion dollars a year on ending aging, they'll say that's a really weird thing. No, um, but this seems like the kind of thing that we should probably like. Let's say there's a seventy-five percent chance that it doesn't work and a twenty-five percent chance that it does work. This seems like a good bet. Like we should be pouring money into some of these things. Well, then you get into the philosophical question of: Do you want to stop aging? Right. You know, at what point is it? You know, so people the, live too long. At what point does the of, earth get overpopulated? Yeah, the, the head of the Future of Humanity Institute has a has a great um, parable, the parable of the dragon tyrant. It sounds really awesome, right? Um, imagine that like every year you sent people off to be eaten by the dragon because otherwise the dragon will kill lots more people. So you have to sacrifice them every year. And you know, after a while, somebody says like, "Hey, like, I think we might be able to kill the dragon," and everybody says, no, "Dude, that's crazy." Like, that is crazy. Besides, having the dragon is what makes your life meaningful. If you, if you, if people don't go to the dragon, then like there's no risk and everybody's, you know, like people won't live their lives to the fullest. This might start reminding you of arguments about why it is that death is a good thing. Um, so, like, you know, we shouldn't do this. And there's this debate about whether we should do this. And then finally they decide, like, yeah, maybe, maybe we should do this. Um, and, like after they kill the dragon, they look back and you ask like, so 
all the people who said, like, maybe we shouldn't have done this, do, do they want to go back? And the answer is no. Nobody right. wants to put, you know, if, if you say, like, well, you know, death makes life meaningful, great. Do you think that we should cap people's lives at 50? No, nobody thinks that. There's just this status quo sure. bias in your head. So, uh, yeah, right. I, I, think that, I think that there's a good argument to be made that we need to worry about overpopulation. And there are good arguments to be made for why it is that, like, you know, fixing longevity for just rich people would be like all sorts of morally questionable and whatever. But also, uh, medical treatments get cheaper over time. So if you know, you start being able to do things like cure cancer only for people who have huge amounts of money. Twenty years later, you can cure cancer for people who have very little money. So yeah, I th- I think that this is just one of those things that. Yeah. yeah. Does the future of humanity institute uh, deal with deal with questions about ex- extra extraterrestrials? A little bit. Um, there's there's a cool paper. Have you heard of the the uh, Fermi equation? Sure. Sorry, the Fermi equation, and then the um, there's a there's a um, question blanking on the uh, the 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 great filter. The great filter is the this like cool. So so there should be extraterrestrials around because if it life evolved on Earth, it probably evolved other places. Um, but we don't see any. Like, we, we aren't seeing any signals, which means that either life doesn't evolve other places or at some point when life evolves, it dies off, either before it hits intelligence or after. And the question is, like, wait, what does that? Because if, like, life evolves routinely but then, like, it dies off because they develop nuclear, nuclear weapons and they almost always kill, kill themselves off – or they're so primitive that we just don't know yet. Well, so so that's so the question is like which of these is sure. in fact the case. Um, so there's a really cool paper uh, by a couple people at uh, Future of Humanity Institute that looks at the Fermi equation and does some um, clever math and shows basically no, actually the odds are pretty good that just evolution of intelligence is really rare, and uh, it's very likely that. Um, within the visible universe, we're at least close to alone. So, yeah, they, they think about it. Um, and, and, you know, it may be that somebody does analyses that overturn that. There's a, there's a really weird, interesting paper about um, somebody had a hypothesis about whether maybe, maybe the reason we don't see the aliens is because um, for thermodynamic efficiency reasons, it's actually much better to save all your energy for when the universe is much older so that you can do more with the same amount of energy. And there's another group of people who think that like the physics might be a little bit wrong, but like maybe all the aliens are out there. Um, the term is estivating because hibernating is when you um, go in when it's cold. This is you go away when it's hot. So like all the aliens are out there and they're just hiding away, taking their time until like... Because what, our galaxy is too hot? Right. So when it gets when it gets colder, then you can do computation more efficiently. Um, so they, they think about these things. I've heard I heard a, a theory that uh, something we talk about a lot, just because you know we're, we're always trying to push where things where conversations can go. Um, that they could be that there are aliens that are so advanced that they don't even bother coming here because we're so primitive. Just as if the way we look at insects, that they look at us and they don't even bother contacting us or coming here. So there's, there's I, don't, I don't remember where I heard that, but uh, there are a lot of well, there are a lot it's, of hypotheses it's, about it's, this. It's like um, the thing that's said often is, you know, 
would you it was a line from the movie Contact actually it was it was actually something that was first posited I think by Sagan which was you know how how much energy would you put into trying to uh, travel across the universe to discover an anthill right um, so if we're that primitive compared to an intelligence that's let's say a billion years ahead of us evolutionarily speaking right. how how much is it worth it for us to come look we're 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 clearly you know Everybody has their feelings on this. There's a lot of stuff going on right now in, in the press. If you look for it, about things that the Pentagon. Yeah, has what, what was that you know, thing uh, that the the, the, the Navy the, uh, fighter plane saw? Declassifying UFOs. Yeah. Well, what yeah. is that? Um, probably um, weather balloons or. Nah, that's not um, weather balloons. I I have to say, this is kind of you know do the do the. Uh, I mean, they do had the, the analysis. They had the pilot on CNN talking yeah. about it. He's not a loony. No, he. I, I, I'm not saying he he's a loony. It, it took off at a at a at a velocity, tic tac shaped the uh, craft that uh, they've yeah. never seen before. So the question is, and like I think this is a reasonable question: is how strong is the evidence, and what do we think that implies? So let's say let's say I, I come in and I say, hey, I can. Uh, I, I'm clairvoyant. I can see the cards that you have in your hand. Get out a deck of cards, and I tell you what the um, top five cards are You're like wow. So do you start believing I'm clair- clairvoyant? Maybe after five cards, maybe it's a really cool magic trick, that, right? It, so I, I think that most people would say he's probably doing a cool magic trick, right? Yeah. Like that's that's the that's the first sure. thing you should jump to, right? Although I love watching magicians and and just believing for. Yes. Okay. I, I think with this stupid, one, the, it's you're, super. It's super. Um, it's it's super easy to find evidence for something that you think would be interesting or cool. And the question is, what else explains that evidence that's more likely? And usually the answer is, there are a lot of other things that could explain this evidence. The types of things that are true, there tend to be an insanely overwhelming amount of evidence for. Like, every time you look, you find out that it's, you know, every time you check the theory of gravity... It still works out like every prediction it makes. Like it keeps on making the right prediction. So is there evidence for gravity? Yeah, there's like an insane amount. Okay, is there evidence that like vaccines stop people from getting sick? Yeah, there's like an insane amount of evidence. Like you don't have to look very hard. If you have to look really hard for evidence of something and even then it's kind of so-so, the question is, is that what's happening? And if so, why is it hard to find evidence for it? And like you need to have some theory for why it is that you don't just have huge amounts of evidence for, um, look, you know, it's hard to keep conspiracies quiet. Like, it's just, sure. it's hard to keep sure. conspiracies sure. quiet. If there was more than one shooter on the hill for JFK, you'd think that we'd have more than just, like, claims well, that somebody saw a document. Right, but you don't have to even go that far. I mean, there's so many people now, especially in the millennial generation, that have a very, very, very hard time believing that the United States landed people on the moon in the 1960s. <laughs> Seriously, I, I, I can't stand conspiracy theories. Um, I, I spent, no, I mean, if there, you, I spent, you, there I have been studies that have been done think, with millennial populations uh, that are, and I can't give you the statistics because I don't. You know, we're millennials. I'm not. Right? I'm not sure with them. Well, what are the we generation are, are, behind are. us? The generation behind us, Z, the younger ones than us. X, X whatever. Y, no, X whatever. is older. Millennials. The people that are in now in their twenties. Yeah, okay, Gen Z. There are people, and I'm sure you know some if you ask them, and I know some that I won't mention, that are very much convinced that it is more likely that it is a massive conspiracy because they can't, in a 
they cannot accept because the moon's really far away. That the U.S. or that humanity possessed the technological resources necessary well, in the 1960s and 70s to do the project and to execute yeah. it and, and to succeed. Um, and they will argue with you and, and use intelligent arguments as to why it is that there was a better interest for the U.S. to win the space race because of Cold War politics than to than to actually do so this. And then I go I'll, back I'll to what David said, which is what, millions of people are being paid off to keep their mouths shut? Right. Like, so it's, it's hard to keep large conspiracies secret. Also, yeah. there was a space race. So the U.S. was worried that Russia was going to stage a landing before. Like if it was impossible to get there. What was the space race about? And by the way, if you want to know, like, look, launching rockets really far away is, like, crazy hard. Like, it seems basically impossible. Um, these people use GPSs, right? Like, we have networks of satellites in outer space that we got there, that we got there, like, a while ago. Like, it's not like, um, you know, I, the, the same thing with the flat earth people. Like, I was just thinking of that. They <laughs> think that it's like, all bullshit. There's no, there's no satellites in space. Fine. NASA's just a so made I have, up thing. So I have a, a really simple response, which is if you want something to be true, you can look for evidence. You can look for evidence that it's true. If, if you want it to be true, um, then, you know, uh, I, I saw somebody say jokingly. They were actually joking, though I could imagine lots of people saying this seriously. said, you know, before you start looking for um, evidence about something, maybe you should ask yourself, do you want it to be true? Because if you don't want it to be true, maybe you just shouldn't look. And that's what lots of people do. Like, okay, so like, am I wrong about this? I'll, I'll, I'll skip to a, a, a very closely related topic that I really like. Um, you guys believe lots of things about the world. What percentage of the things that you believe do you think that like other people disagree with? What percentage do you think you're wrong about? I don't know. Half. I have no idea. Right? It should be about half. Like if, yeah. if, if there are two large groups of people and they disagree about something, then like it takes a really weird perspective to say like I'm probably on the right side of every single one of those debates. I know lots of people like that. Right, oh, yeah. but, but people do. I have like, a hard time talking to them. <laughs> there's inside view that like oh but like yeah but like i'm right and they're wrong obviously um you should assume that you're wrong now okay so so you say like i'm wrong about about half of the things that i believe maybe sure. a little bit less i think yeah. i'm smarter than most of these people so i don't know maybe maybe only a third um great which, which third i i don't know sure. like i really don't know uh so good so like you can say like yeah you're gonna be wrong about a lot of things and if somebody comes to me with a clear case that one of these things that I'm pretty sure about is wrong, the question is, what do you do? And uh, there's there are two ways to approach arguments. One is that the winner is the person who convinces the other person, and the other is the winner is the person who ends up knowing more and being more correct afterwards than they were before. I don't want to be right when I start an argument, I want to be right when I'm done with you. I want to have a discussion and have somebody give me the best arguments they have against my position. Sure. And yeah. if I'm wrong, I want to I want to be able to say at the end, wow, I was wrong <laughs> about this. And and being able to say you're wrong is hard. Um, I posted on a, a, a blog a while ago the things I was wrong about for COVID-19. And there were, there were a list of them. There, there were a bunch of things early yeah. on. I didn't think that shutting down air travel would work at all. Um, I said like in January, I, I didn't think – there were a lot of things I thought – you know, I didn't think masks were nearly as effective as they ended up being. I changed my mind. I changed my mind in, you know, mid-March that like, yeah, people should. But like, 
you want to be able to say, hey, I said all these things. I was moderately confident in them. I was wrong. Here's the things. What do I do next time to make me less confused or less confident when I'm wrong? So this is, this is, I mean, we kind of do this on the show to some extent. Um, And this is something that I kind of try to do on a personal level is that, you know, I have my beliefs, but uh, I, I frequently get into discussions with people where, you know, I'm trying to convince them. I say, you know what? Convince me I'm wrong. Please, please convince me I'm wrong. Bring me such a good argument that, that it'll change my mind. And I'm always looking for this, for these kind of things. Um, you so, know, whether it's religion, whether it's politics, um, science, I feel like I, I maybe I just don't know enough. So I'm just learning rather than trying to be convinced. Um, and, and I think this is this, you know, when, whenever you run into the kind of people who are just so absolutely sure of themselves on things that are not verified. That everybody doesn't agree variable, about. That then you know I just have a hard time talking to these to to these kind of people and and I just disengage from these conversations. So, well, to, my but, favorite to, my favorite question to ask in this conversation, like when when you're having a conversation, two people really disagree, is okay. I want everybody to stop, spend a minute, and write down something that could be true about the world that would change their mind. Like, give me a piece of evidence or two or mind. three. Right. right. What would and and you know so you say like I'm pretty sure that vaccines work. And the question is what would change my mind? And the answer is a decent sized randomized controlled trial that looked at whether they work and found that they didn't do better than a placebo. It's a really straightforward now is that evidence that exists in the world? No. Probably. I've I've looked for no. it. No, there, there are no large-scale RCTs that don't have severe methodological issues that say anything like vaccines don't work. They, they say some vaccines are slightly less effective than we thought before, but there are, no vac- there are no studies that say, like, we tried a well-regarded vaccine on a lot of people and then exposed them to the virus and they all got sick. Or we exposed two groups of people to the virus and the ones who had the vaccine got sick at exactly the same rate as the people who didn't. They, they just don't do anything. There aren't studies like that. But if you, if you did one and you showed it to me, yeah, I would change my mind. Okay, what would, what would convince you that two plus two equals three? Is there something that could convince you that two plus two equals three? I have no idea. And and so I don't, I don't know how to a guy I know a guy I know said yeah uh, here here's here's what it would take I wake up in the morning and I look at my fingers and I put two up on one hand I put two up on the other and I count them and I get three and then I ask somebody and they look at me like I'm crazy and they say what do you mean two plus two equals three and then I search the internet and I can't find anybody who says two plus two equals four and I start and and then I start going like I don't know maybe. I live my whole life like pretty sure about this, but like everywhere I look, everywhere I look, everybody says that that's not what anybody thinks. I would say I was wrong. I would say I got that wrong. There is evidence that, should, and 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 I think both of you would say, yeah, if that happened to me, I would, I'd be very, I I might I might go to a uh, uh, neurologist or psychologist. Yeah, I'd be very and concerned. Ask, right. I'd be very concerned, but also I would change my mind about the, sure. you know, you're likely to be wrong about lots of things. Some of them are going to be things that, you know, you're, you don't expect to be wrong about. Some of them are things that you're not sure about. And almost none of them are going to be things that you're completely convinced of. But you should still be able to specify to somebody else what would convince you that the U.S. didn't land on the moon. And my answer is somebody could today spend 
uh, less than $200 million to send an unmanned ship with live video feed to where the Apollo missions landed Find the flag. and get video. And if there's no flag and no evidence and nothing, the flag probably disintegrated, but the pole will still be there, as will the footprints. Um, like, you know, if, if they don't find anything, I'd start really seriously questioning things. So that's about scientific fact, okay? Yeah. That's, that's about saying something happened. No, it didn't happen. It's a conspiracy theory. How do you do that same approach on... Let's take something super controversial, and I don't want to get into the controversiality of it, but say something like the peace process, right? Yeah. Where where people are saying, you know, no, if we ever do A, then B for sure is going to happen because, you know, right? I mean, can that kind of same approach be taken to things that haven't happened and you're just afraid they will? I mean... Yeah, so the question that I have in my mind is uh, about this is, is the question that you're trying to answer factual or values? Because some questions are value <coughs> questions. Um, is it a good idea to make peace? That's a value question. Mm-hmm. Um, is the but, Israeli but too, economy often, is the Israeli economy going to grow if we and the Palestinians agree to this specific peace plan? That's a factual question. We can't know the answer without actually having it happen, but it is a factual sure. question about the future. Right. So it's measurable. First of all, you want to make sure that your questions are factual. If you want to, if you want to change your mind, you need to make sure that like you're ax- asking something that like you could get a factual answer to. You try this. You specify in advance. This is what would happen, and I expect this to be the outcome. You never observe counterfactual reality. You never. This is this is a problem in. Uh, econometrics and statistics when you start talking about like you do a randomized control trial and like you never actually see what would happen if you gave somebody the thing instead of not or like you can't because you either do or you don't and the way that we get around this is clever statistics plus some assumptions about how it is that reality works um you can't always do that there are some things that are fundamentally not amenable to this but there are also pretty useful pieces of information that Shouldn't like make you completely convinced, but look, I'll tell you, I have some real solid opinions about the peace process. If you ran a large scale prediction market and said like, hey, like, you know, if Israel does this, this will happen. If Israel does this, this will happen. If Israel does this, this will happen. And the outcome of a clearly specified peace plan of this type the predictors just said, like, we think that that will not help Israel's economy at all. We don't think that it'll last. We don't th- Even if you get everybody to agree, we don't think that that'll lead to long-term peace. Whatever it is, if, you would, if they end up saying that, like, the predictors, the market as a whole is pretty sure, I'd mostly change my mind. Because, yeah, I, I might be wrong about my assertions about that. Um there's there's a kind of slight problem with this, which is uh, it's easy to claim that, oh, yeah, if you asked a bunch of people and you did this, then they would agree with me. And that's a lot cheaper than actually running the experiment. So a lot of the time people just say, I'm sure because I should be sure. But, yeah, there you should be able to say what it is that would convince you, even if it's not something that's likely. I can get into philosophy here for just a second. Do it. Bertrand Russell 
had a thought experiment. Russell's teapot. Have either of you heard of this? I've heard of Bernard Russell. I haven't heard of the experiment. Right. So Russell's teapot is a claim that exactly 180 degrees away from Earth, in the same orbit, there is a teapot orbiting the sun. We can't see it. And we'll never see it. I mean, you could. Like, is that a scientific... His question was, is that a scientific sure. hypothesis? Is, is that the same kind of thing like when I close my eyes, there's an elephant in the room? Right, so, uh, so, so is that a scientific hypothesis? Is, and, and the problem is that, like, on some level, yes, it's, you, could, you could send something there and look and see if it was true or false. Is it reasonable to believe that it's true? No. No, it's not. So why? It's a claim. And the answer is because you need to look at why it is that somebody would believe that it's true um, in order to, like, have a good reason to um, actually make this, um, like, make me start thinking on, like, without any additional evidence, there's a reason to think this. Most facts that I am presented with, if I look into it, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that supports it and close to none that disagrees with it. So, like, I don't need, like, I don't need to run the experiment to check that gravity exists. I can look at all of the evidence that's already there. The, you know, when somebody comes to me and says, it's possible that this is true and you can't disprove it, this is where you start getting into, well, what's the burden of proof? What's the, I, I, don't, I don't think that that's necessarily a helpful yeah. uh, framing, but on some level, my response is, look, I don't have any prior reason to think this is true. Start giving me evidence. Don't tell me I can't disprove it. Start giving me evidence. Start telling me why you think it's true. And a lot of the time, uh, we have a Nobel Prize winner uh, from Israel, Alman, who has a paper that I absolutely love um, on the Alman Agreement Theorem, which it's, it's game theory, but it says really simply, two rational people cannot agree to disagree about something. Two rational people cannot agree to disagree. To disagree. Look, I think there's a teapot you don't. Because two rational people who are interested in finding the truth and are truthful with one another and are willing to exchange evidence back and forth should be able to talk about why they think it is true or not. And the other person should be able to come to the same conclusion based yeah. on the same evidence. So if you're sure something is true, there's some process that caused you to believe that. And if I'm in possession of all of that information, I should either agree with you or change your mind or give you evidence that makes you think. And, mm -hmm. and a lot yeah, of the time the answer be, is to be fair. I could say Dan and I are both rational people. I like spicy food and he doesn't. Ah, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not a disagreement about fact. Well, it's a fact that I like. Uh, I like does he does, does he tell you that you don't like spicy, spicy food? food? Is the best. That's, that's an opinion. That's an opinion. That's an opinion. First of all, okay, I like spicy. I like spicy food. Just so. Yeah. So no, let's, let's, let's not get the wrong ideas here. Okay. Okay. Yet. Okay, but I'm, I'm going I'm to go somewhere. But, I might go somewhere. But here. it doesn't happen. Experts disagree all the time, and the question is why. And the answer is because the assumptions behind Alman Agreement Theorem are like definitely false um, in a couple of different ways, but. Um, most of the most of the time, it's really simple. Like um, the experts don't actually talk to one another. They don't try and find out what the truth is. They have um, they, they have more to gain from um, 
not publicly admitting that they're wrong than publicly admitting that they were wrong. Like there are a lot of reasons that Mm -hmm. it doesn't happen. Most of them just have to do with the fact that it's actually kind of difficult on every single issue to spend all of the time to get, you know, have the really long conversation that causes both people to converge on the same opinion, especially. And and we don't have evidence for everything. Like you said, even on vaccines, you don't have, you should have. So that, to, to give you a little bit more detail, you should be able to agree on the probability that you think something is true, even if mm. you can't agree on whether or not it's true. So I'm an agreement theorem says, yeah, there are some things that are unknowable, but you should still eventually converge to say, both of us think there's a one in three chance that this is true. And people don't, and it's because people are not perfectly rational. Now, there, there are a couple other assumptions there, but... Yeah. Um, so I think that kind of getting more rational and figuring out how it is that you get closer to this is useful. I think that being able to specify the evidence. So I, I think that that's why that's a useful exercise. So I got to ask you, if I am a philanthropist, if I am Jeff Bezos and I come to you and I say, I'm going to dump a billion dollars, $5 billion, $10 billion to you to set up whatever research one question that you could now take however long you need to figure out one problem for the world for humanity for whatever what are you going to look at what are you going to try to tackle so the question in my mind boils down to uh something that effective altruism kind of came up with which is um what's important so, you know, there, there are lots of things that I could look at that just don't matter. Um, a lot of scientific research looks at things that, like, the, the consequences of it being true one way or the other aren't so clear. Sometimes they have, like, important, like, long-term implications. Pure science is really valuable. Um, it, but is it important? Is it tractable? So if um, I wanted to end nuclear war, billion dollars doesn't get me anywhere. Well, however much money you need, whatever. Well, so however much money I need is a little bit different, but I just, is it tractable with this scale of money? So like there are a lot of things that um, I think any reasonable scale of money doesn't fix the problem. If I don't want super volcanoes to happen, I don't know of an amount of money sure. that could possibly okay. change, you know, geophysics. Like it's just not. Um, and then the last um, question is, is it neglected? Curing AIDS would be great. But everybody's working on that already. Mm-hmm. Another billion dollars probably wouldn't do that much. Um, so I think that the there are a couple of issues that are important, tractable, and neglected. I think that there are a list of seven or eight diseases that are close. To, I look uh, curing malaria completely. Malaria is really bad. Lots of people get it. Um, so is uh, um, schistosomiasis, which is a intestinal worm that lots of people in third world countries get. Um, that actually is like super tractable because there's a 50 cent pill that you can give to people that doesn't hurt them, that gets rid of it. Um, we just need to give this pill to like all of the little kids. And the world is currently spending, you know, $100, $200 million a year doing this. And if I had, you know, $20 billion to throw around, then I could just fix this and get rid of it and end it completely. Um, so there are a lot of a lot of things that would be high on that list. Um, most of them aren't so research-oriented. The biggest thing I'm uncertain about, if I just yeah. had to do research, is probably um, 
how do you make sure that machine learning and artificial intelligence is safe? Safe in what way? All sorts of ways. Um, you ever see the Terminator? Want- of course. Yeah, that way. Yeah, so that would be bad, but I, it's not, you know, that's a really, it's a weird case. It's very unlikely. Um, I'm more worried about people deploying things in the relatively short term, like military AI that just like they don't do enough bug checking on and it does the wrong thing. Um, there's, Are they making an Avengers movie about that? I mean, yeah. I don't want the military's uh, nuclear command system to ever have a neural network in it. Like that, that seems like a really oh, bad Jesus. way to do things. What, what does that mean? A neural network, like a deep learning, whatever, like AI like thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't want them That's ever gonna, to have that anywhere near there. Um, I should have taken more Ciprolex this morning. <laughs> so like there's, there's like, and they're not going to, because like there are a lot of people, but like, yeah, there, there are some things that um, we don't know how to make sure that machine learning systems do exactly what we want. And we're going to have them drive cars pretty soon. And that's a really good idea because an AI system that, is like 99.999% effective, which we're pretty sure we can achieve. Is better than um, human. Is definitely better than the drunk guy who gets behind the wheel, um, even if it's not better than the best driver. But like we should at least have that available. So uh, I, I worry that like as, as computers become more and more prevalent and we put more and more onto them, that the things that can go wrong get bigger and bigger. And there are a lot of people looking at that. There's a center at Georgetown that's looking at this that, was given fifty million dollars, and there's uh, there are some groups, um, Center for Human Compatible AI at Berkeley, and there there are groups working on this. But I think another uh, one to ten billion dollars would probably be useful for helping figure out whether we should worry about this or not. I'll talk to my imaginary philanthropist. Okay. So uh, what's the? Um, but but again, yeah, lower priority than curing malaria right now. I think. Yeah, there are we people don't, who yet, disagree. Yet, yet people that aren't in your position don't spend a lot of their day worrying about malaria. No. Like, no I, don't, I don't walk around. Because you don't live but in... It's, but, but you put malaria... This is interesting. Yeah. You put malaria above COVID. Okay, so one okay. of the assumptions for um, effective altruism, and not everybody who talks about it, is um, cause neutrality and person neutrality. Um, and th- this is an ideal, not like, if you ask me, um, you know, you're in a burning building and your kid is in one room and two random strangers are in the other room. Um, who would you save? My kid. Absolutely my kid. Right. Saving. But. Altruistically, other side you is, would want to save two people. But the other one. side is, right. I think, well, I'll just, you know, the, the simple question is if there was a rule that every time there was a burning building, you had to do one or the other. I would say, I don't know which person, which, which room my kid's going to be in. I'm selfishly personally better off. So the question, and and this gets into deep philosophy about, but like, I think there's a value in saying, let's look at this in a person neutral setting and just ask the question, should I give $3,000 to a feed the homeless charity locally or $3,000 to save somebody's life in Africa? And I think the answer is pretty clearly, if that second one is an option, you should probably do that. So from a cause-neutral standpoint, which I think is valuable, especially for philanthropic things, because like I think that you know, humanity as a whole should prioritize a little bit better, and I think that that's a good way to do that. Um, I think that we should, in fact, care about that. More people die of malaria. COVID is really bad, but not nearly as neglected, um, and we're currently 
barreling full speed ahead. Another billion dollars, we should be spending a lot more than that. Another billion dollars is not going to make right. nearly okay. as much of a difference. So I have to press on this because I, there's a lot of people that would be upset at me if I didn't. What you just said is absolutely true. Malaria seems to have a huge global mm-hmm. impact every year, just probably not in the places where you and I and Dan yep. go. Yet here we are, and we've completely and totally drastically changed the way that we live to 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 like and we agree to overreact to to yeah. to get to solutions for covid dan threw out a statistic to me which I, I i don't know what the source of is that you know we right now and, and definitely by the time this podcast gets released we'll probably have around 550 people in this country that have died of covid in america it's way more where america is a much bigger country but in israel in a nation of nine million we have 550 more or less dead and this is the stat compared to last year at including time. at this time and including those 550 people, fewer people this year have died overall than they did last year. So what the hell are we doing? Okay, so this is this is where I was talking about like it's hard to make counterfactual decisions. Um, this is where it's it's really difficult because let's say we had done nothing. Yeah, would 550 people die? No, no, a lot, a, a lot, lot more. more. Okay, so the question is, what is not like so? Uh, I'm absolutely certain that if you do the math um, per life saved, there are a lot of things we could have done with the billions of shekel that have been put into coronavirus um, prevention and other things in Israel than were actually lost. That's a really different statement than saying if we hadn't spent that money, we would be in just as bad or good a position. Right? Like that's, that's a different question. Um, infectious diseases spread. Like that's kind of that, the point. That's why they're called infectious, right? It's you know good good naming. So <laughs> so the question we're going to call this research and development corporation the Rand Corporation, yes. right? I'm saying like just you know let's let's get the let's get the obvious things Branding. right first. So so the question is what's the counterfactual if we hadn't done anything? And I, the answer is really clearly. Um, Something like one percent of the people who get sick die. That's a really big number in a country with eight million people. Right. So eighty thousand deaths is a lot. Is a lot more. Is it worth doing what we've done to prevent eighty thousand deaths? I think the answer is pretty clearly yes. Um, and uh, to. The, the deaths that have happened, the deaths that happened because we're not dealing with this, the deaths that – these are tragedies. Right. Um, and you still want to step back and say which tragedies are we trying to prevent and which tragedies like are outside our scope. Um, not because we don't care about them but because we don't think we can do as much. And I think that's where the analysis side actually comes in. You do, you do want to – start asking what can you, you know, you get handed a billion dollars. Um, the first thing I think you should do is hire a couple people to help make you help you make the decision. Yeah. Mackenzie Bezos, um, who got divorced from Jeff Bezos, who was your example. Mm-hmm. So she, she works well, um, has actually been doing this. She ended up with $35 billion after the divorce, which chump, is chump change, right? It, more money than she no needs. Deal. Um, according to her, like, I don't know if it's more money than I need, but it's more money than she needs according to her. So she's been giving it away and she's been doing it in a really interesting way, which is 
She's just been contacting charities that she thinks do a really good job and writing them checks. And she has no idea who's actually... And she's not... No, she's not having them fill out 200-page grant proposals. And she's not um, spending a ton of time and money monitoring what they do with the money. Um, And I think that that's probably about right to do some of the time. I think that if all the philanthropists did that, then we would have no idea about whether the things that we're doing are effective. But I think that there's enough research done by other groups to figure out like what does and doesn't work that I think that it's, it's reasonable to hand more money just to the places that do good work. So uh, the research that she does is find which groups are already doing this and make sure that they're the best group to do it and hand them the money. Um, so if I was actually given a billion dollars or $10 billion, I would immediately call up people at the Gates Foundation and – uh, you know, similar, the Open Philanthropy, which uh, does a bunch of work on this, and the, the GiveWell, which does a lot of work on evaluating charities, and just tell them to tell me where to give the money. No, but but I, I asked you kind of in more of a hypothetical. Yeah, no, I understand. Right. I'm saying, but like, but but I think practically there's a sure. lot of value in just saying like, yeah, like let's, you know, if we want to know what the most important things to do are, let's, you know, kind of list out what's what's important and work on those things. Uh-huh. Somebody, I, I think it was, um, I think it was the chairman of the board at Tel Shomer Hospital, whose name is escaping me at the moment, said that whether uh, or not we uh, do the measures that we're doing to mitigate the effects of COVID, there will be roughly around 8,000 deaths in Israel by the time this ends. Meaning... No matter what we do. No matter what we do. So it doesn't matter. You could get there quickly. And have massive issues with the healthcare system and treatment, Mm -hmm. or you could get there over the course of two or three years. But at the end, we're all, you know, it's going to happen one way or the other. Um, Uh, I'm not certain that that's false. Um, But if you offered me 10 to 1 odds, my $100 versus your 1,000, or sorry, my thousand dollars versus your hundred. Mm-hmm. I would take the bet that it's wrong. With you know, like I would hand you a lot of money if that turned out to be true. I'm pretty sure that it's false. That I, I think that it's pretty clear that if you slow things enough and you get to vaccine before so many people die, that you stop it. I think that there's a real chance that you can stop transmission. I think that if you slow it enough so that we get good rescue therapy, you can reduce the death rate from, uh, you know, 8,000 to, you know, 2,000. Like, I think that I think that there are a lot of places where um, you can do more than you can do more than that. I think that. um and so my question for somebody who states that as something that they're certain about is how sure are you and what would change your mind right. going back? I'm like going that's, back that. and, and, and it's hard to have public conversations. Politicians get nowhere by saying, look, I think there's a one in three chance that this will be go horribly wrong, but I'm doing it anyway. Um, they need to be confident. They need to be sure that what they're doing is the right thing. Um, even though that's a ridiculous bar, just in terms of like actually getting elected. And, and what you said earlier, I mean, it's better for a politician, just from a po- purely political perspective, to not do something. Yeah. So than, I, there, there are a lot of reasons that goes right. wrong. But I think that um, that if you're just talking about 
what it is that people honestly think will happen and whether they can their minds can be changed. I think it'd be really valuable to sit down and have people there were there were a number of people. There was definitely an op-ed in the J Post that said that um, the trajectory of COVID has looked the same everywhere, which is um, it goes up for a while and then it goes down gradually and ends, no matter what they do. So we should just ignore it. And everybody in the world right now looks back at that op-ed and says, no, that's not quite how that happens. Like you do get resurgence. Um, Was it obvious at the time that they were wrong? I thought so, but as I, I told people at the time, look, like, they could be right. I'd rather overreact. Yeah, I'm not sure that they're wrong, but I'm sure enough that I think that it's crazy to rely on it. Hmm. So I, I got to ask you um, and kind of start to wrap up here. Yep. First of all, this this has been – I can't remember the last time I had a conversation with someone where my mind was blown and just, you know – expanded on, on so many levels. But we talk so often, Dan. <laughs> so thank you for that, first of all. Um, what is the most interesting, coolest book you're reading or have read recently? A guy at Oxford wrote a book called The Precipice, um, which is about um, risks to humanity um, and whether they're serious or not and what he thinks about them and kind of goes through in really Toby great detail. To, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's a really interesting, well-written book. Um, and I don't only say that because I got to thank you for helping with the biosecurity chapter, but, but it doesn't hurt. Is it going um, to give me a panic attack? I don't think so. Um, I like, I, he concludes that, um, there's some risk that something goes wrong in the next century, but it's not like it's nowhere near certain. One of the things that reassures me, people say like you, you worry about the end of the world all the time. And I say, yeah, I worry about whether it's, you know, a one in a trillion event or one in a quadrillion event. Um, I'm comfortable enough with the math that the number of zeros after the decimal point keeps me pretty happy. I sleep fine. Um, I think that that's mostly true. Um, again, you know, that doesn't mean we shouldn't spend a lot of money in case something bad does happen. But I think, but it's a really interesting book. And any books not related to your field? There's a, let's see, I, there's a book that I'm kind of in the middle of called Utopia um, by, I want to say Daner. I'll look it up um, real quick. By John Daner, um, looking at my e-reader, um, that talks about like, what could the future look like and would it be bad if humans like never had to work and like could just like sit around doing nothing or would that be like really good and what might it look like? Um, I just interject. The full title of the book is Automation and Utopia, Human Flourishing in a World Without Work by John Daner. Yeah. And his his claim is that um, – even people who like their jobs would be better off if they didn't have to do them. And most people don't like their jobs. I'm in the privileged minority. I think what I do is really interesting. I really enjoy it. But I'd also be much happier if I didn't have to worry about making rent right. um, and you know making sure that my grants get funded. So, yeah, it's a really interesting question. A very, It's a little bit philosophical. It's, it's 
less readable and more philosophical than The Precipice, um, but it's really very interesting. Cool. Awesome. We'll put those into the show notes, and uh, I'm definitely going to have to read them. I'm a little bit worried that The Precipice is going to give me some sort of a terrible panic attack about... Uh, do you, want me to, do you want me to read it first? All these wonderful ways that I can that I can die, but you know that that's <laughs> going to happen too. Um, this was this was really really fascinating. I'm just wondering if there's any other questions or or things that we that we didn't get to. I, I kind of have. I do have one more question. Sure. Um, and I was debating whether I wanted to go down this road. So uh, definitely don't want this to turn into like because this could be a whole another podcast. But um, so we got a few people watching this on uh, Facebook Live right now. Uh, and I've been trying to wave hi to them as uh, as we conduct this interview. But most of the people are, are just going to hear your voice. Okay. Mm. And uh, you are an Orthodox Jew, right? Yes. You're wearing a, a kippah. Um, how, do you Wouldn't it be funny? He was just like, oh, I am. <laughs> Where did this come from? Do you feel, um, you know, coming from a, a background of, of strong belief and uh, from a Torah background and a Shiva background and, and, uh, Having, I'm assuming, did you grow up this way? Yeah. Okay. Has that, do you feel that affects your work? Uh, do you feel that affects the way you think about some of these things? Um, does that influence you? Uh, does it make it harder to be an Orthodox Jew? Or does it make it easier? Um, yeah, those are interesting questions. Um, I will say, yeah, most of the people who I work with are definitely very clearly atheists. Um, and... I think that there's a lot. Uh, there, there are definitely there. There's a. I'm not not remembering uh, which Rishon, but there was. Uh, there's a Rishon that talks about Migdal Balvel, and says uh, a Rishon being a, a rabbi, a medieval from, medieval from commentator, the medieval period, right? Right. Um, who talked about the Tower of Babel, um, and and says they were punished less than the people for the flood. Why? Because it's perfectly reasonable to try and do things to prevent catastrophe. That's a great thing to do. Um, so I, you know, that, that, that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable with, uh, the type of work I do. I, I think that, um, there are definitely tensions between, for instance, cause neutrality, where you say like everybody's life is equally valuable and Hilchot Sedaka, the, the rules of charitable giving in, um, Judaism, which have some specific rules, some okay. of which are in tension with uh, this. Right. Take care of your own first right. type. So I, I, there, there are some things that are in tension and some things that I think are much less, um, obviously intention than, than you might think at first. Um, I could do a podcast on that. It's a really interesting I, question. I think we're going to have to do a whole second but, uh, follow-up. But, um, yeah, I, I think that there are, there are questions that um, definitely uh, raise tensions. I think that um, belief is very different. Um, and I think that people need to be aware that... Um, most of the things that we talk about in belief, so so I said, like, you should be willing to say what it is that would change your mind about things. And that doesn't and I, work with belief, right? I think, one sec, I think that it does, but you need to be very careful because most of the things that belief depends on are values. They are um, what it is. There, there are factual questions that we can't resolve. There are factual questions that I think um, we obviously can resolve that some people are very stubborn about, um, you know, Every time somebody tells me that, um, you know, the Torah says that evolution isn't a thing, um, I um, I cringe just a little bit because I hate the idea that somebody's 
valid and valuable religious belief hinges on something that's false. Right. Um, so I, I, like, I, I definitely feel like there are places where you can have real tensions there. They're, they're not necessarily problems. I, I think that... I understand they're not necessarily clear. problems, right. but, but they, they can become problems, right? Both yeah. in the religious community being a scientist and then in the scientist community being religious, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I haven't found that people are super... Um, super worried about this, super concerned about this. Um, I will say that I, I think that um, I, I feel this very strongly, that um, I've had people ask me, uh, straight-faced, like no, no question, how do you reconcile um, the Big Bang and my Sibiratius, the, the, the Bible's account of creation? Like right, how do you right. reconcile these two things? And I say, I, I'm not sure. Like, do you have trouble reconciling them? And they're like, yeah, I have trouble. I said, oh, so like, do you have a background in cosmology and physics? And they say, no. And I say, oh, well, have you like done an in-depth study of, um, you know, all of the commentators and uh, the philosophical and um, non-philosophical literature in Judaism about um, the creation account and how it is that you can understand it. And they say, no. And I say, okay, great. So there are two things that you don't understand and you don't understand how they fit? Yeah, of course you don't. Like, that's not an objection. Um, so I, I think that part of this is, you know, people have a really easy time um, coming up with objections that they themselves can't answer. Right. Which isn't surprising. Um I think that um, – I, I definitely think that questioning these things is valuable. I think that people should do it. I don't – I like – but people should also recognize that like their personal conclusions about this are reasonably likely to be wrong just like everything else, especially if they have no particular expertise. Sure. Yeah. And be – epistemically humble admit that there are things that they just don't have particularly well-informed opinions about and that needs to be okay because there's a limited amount of time to do everything talk about everything we'd like to um explore all the questions that we're interested in um but we live life and try and make good decisions anyway awesome i feel a lot better about uh, a lot (laughs) of things after having this, this conversation with you um i think that we're in a very, very strange and unknown place right now in yeah. terms of our lives, especially the time that we've been on this planet. But um, I don't think that there's value, and I think that you, you, you have delved into this very, very thoroughly. I don't think that in this particular case, there's a great amount of value in fearing what we're going through right now as if it is the apocalypse. No, this, and, is, this is not... Apocalypse is coming in November, according to my chart of crazy oh, things is... happening in 2020. Yeah. Um, After uh, nunchuck wielding bears, and uh, well, we avoided the murder hornets. So now, uh... I said this was my this was my uh, <laughs> you know um, this isn't the end of the world. The end of the world has a lot more explosions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. Awesome, Doctor David Mannheim. Thank you so much for joining us. On thank Nuanced. you. Nuanced. And I think we're gonna have you on again. There's a lot of things we can talk about. Great. If you if you're willing to come, if you'll have us. Yeah. Mm. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. 
make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced.